0: You might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean,
1: Christ, the same
2: house. Oh, maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never
1: answer the... I'm bored. Way. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking... Shucks no. A real house. Real plumbing and everything. We're talking... Sepia-toned recreations. And we're talking... Mothman!
0: And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking Chapstick. Okay, Indrid. It's really scary! It's unnerving. We are discussing Mark Pellington's The Mothman Prophecies for our final entry in our Toxic Masculinity... Oh wait, no, I'm sorry. This is a reprieve from our Toxic Masculinity series.
1: You're welcome. We gave you four weeks but not a full month.
0: That's fair, that's fair. But honestly, I'm just going to dive right into introducing our guest, because we picked this because this is one of our guest's, like, big... I don't know if it's one of his favorite movies, but he really likes it. Okay. So, everyone, he is an occasional writer for Bloody Disgusting, who has now become an excellent counseling psychologist with a PhD, but you may also remember him from our episodes on, oh boy, uh, The X-Files, I Want to Believe, I Know What You Did Last Summer, It Follows, and Suspiria. Please welcome back... Professor Ari Drew. Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome to the show, dear husband. Thank you. And this is, in fact, which I mean,
2: I'm a little uh offended you didn't know this, but this is actually one of my favorite movies.
0: Well, I know you're really into the cryptid stuff, which is probably like a gross, like, <laughs> oversimplification. Sure. <Oversimplification, yeah>, of, <laughs> of your interests. Yes. You know, Ari, you famously
1: like all that weird shit with the creatures in the woods. Yep. I, I sure do.
2: I love that shit.
0: Well, okay. I, but I know this, Ari, but why Why is this one of your favorite movies?
2: Ooh, okay. So um, I would just say broadly, as far as kind of cryptid lore goes and general, high strangeness, which I have probably talked about on here, that term at least.
0: Just in case, can you just give listeners a quick refresher on what high strangeness is? Yeah,
2: it's essentially, I mean, there are a lot of different terms to describe these things, but it's essentially things that are difficult to explain using, you know, the basis of what we currently have available to us in science, um, as far as our understanding of the world and the universe. And so things like UFO sightings, um, mm. ghosts, uh, having um, any kind of uh, intense spiritual experience that isn't really easily defined, would they would be qualified as uh, highly strange experiences
0: and do you have a lot of experience with the mothman um you know what i i've it
2: is one of my dreams to visit point pleasant west virginia which is where um the whole mothman lore begin mm-hmm. um they actually do a mothman festival every year so i'm hoping uh, you know next year maybe um our little i have a little um high strangeness group that i you know occasionally will do some trips throughout the year and so hopefully we'll be able to do A group trip there which would be great and i would love to you know just kind of be more in that energy but yeah i mean i i love mothman for a number of reasons i would say this movie particularly because Mothman is my favorite cryptid, it just really – it does a really good job of pa- uh, neatly packaging and condensing as much as is possible. And I'm saying this from someone who's read the the book that it's based on and who knows a lot mm-hmm. – probably a lot more than the the layperson would about this stuff.
0: Well, th- th- then we do for sure. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Yeah. But it's something like the way it packages a lot of the themes that are really prevalent um, whenever discussing the bigger concepts around high strangeness or theories. It re- does a really good job of representing a lot of them in a very – streamlined way which is really when i when i talk about the book in a little bit it, you'll see why it was just a really big task, even trying to adapt that book in the way that it's uh, structured into something that ha- was like narratively cohesive.
1: Cause that book is nonfiction.
2: Right. It's, yeah, yes. And it's, uh, yeah, the, the John Keel, who's the, the writer of the book that Richard Gere's character is based on. Yeah, it's about his uh, exploration of the Point Pleasant area and the um, Ohio Valley area uh, ongoings that were just really weird for about a little over a year, 1966, 1967. Mothman is a figure that people in the area you know, uh, started seeing, but that is really only, uh, you know, a sliver of what what really happened in the area as far as the highly strange things that were going on. So Hmm. uh, yeah, needless to say, there's a lot of material there, but I thought that they were really selective in how, with this particular script and what they decided to focus on.
0: I I think there's a reason for that too, because, and I'll I'll go through this in more detail when I go through the production, but it sounds like the original script for this was going to be more of a creature feature. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I
2: remember a reading that and also like there are other mothman movies out there that are straight up creature features i don't think i've ever seen one i've seen like uh, some documentaries and stuff
0: there, there is a documentary actually so um th- there is not a blu-ray of this available in the states but there is an australian blu-ray that came out i want to say a couple years ago um mm-hmm. but it includes a 45 minute documentary on the mothman oh fun yeah hmm. um i think it actually would have been made around the time this was filmed because i started watching it and it was like you know oh like there's a movie coming out soon called the wolf Prophecies. <laughs> <laughs> how exciting no joe d- was this did you see this in theaters because i feel like this was a first time watch for you since you first saw it right correct yeah
1: so it's definitely been more than 20 years since i've seen this but Whew. i did see it in theaters because this was kind of the height of my movie going time mm-hmm. period like late 90s early 2000s was my jam so anything mm. that was vaguely horror I was probably seeing it and I remember liking this but I think I said this last week I didn't remember much about this movie except for the fact that yeah it was Richard Gere, Laura Linney and it had that amazing climax and I feel like that's probably how most people remember this film
0: this film is very much a vibe like I mm-hmm. everyone you know Joe and I are with front times this is a full Fully two-hour movie, and I (laughs) don't quite think it justifies that runtime. But I do think the the climax is worth the wait. Yes. I would agree with that. All right. So I I actually don't think you know this about me, but the Mothman was the first cryptid that I really came into, not into contact with, but like learned about because, so Mm. this would have come out when I was in seventh grade. I was about to turn 13 when this came out. And Mm. the year prior, I'm in sixth grade, and we get a project on, I don't think we called it cryptids, but I think it was like big legends or whatever. So it was like, folklore yeah like lore so we were all assigned you know the Bigfoot the Loch Ness whatever and I don't remember if I was assigned it or if I just saw the word Mothman and I was like that sounds cool mm-hmm and these are you know the early days of the internet being like a, a common thing but I remember doing this project on the Mothman and reading in, you know 2001 internet oh yeah there's a movie coming out called Mothman with Richard Gere and my teacher did not believe me <laughs> <laughs> you found that on the deep web and it's not real <laughs> <laughs> so when this was coming out i was actually really excited because i was like oh yeah i did this project of the mothman like last year i want to go see this movie and i think i have a greater appreciation for it now um mostly because of age and because of my husband's interest in this stuff than i did back when i was 12 because uh, sure. i think i did i think i did find this a bit slow and it's a little slow yeah. yeah but okay well why don't we go into how this came to be so Mothman Prophecies was directed by Mark Pellington, who, um, unsurprisingly for anyone who has seen this film, comes from the world of MTV. And this is how he knew musical duo Tom and Andy who scored the film, but here's the thing. He spins... 1984 to 1990, creating analog-based promos, so anywhere from 10 seconds to 2 minutes for MTV, and during that time, experimental films of the 60s and 70s were big influences on him, which led to him playing with film emulsion, overexposure, opticals, infrared film, and things like that. Mm mm-hmm. Because of this experience and what he did, his directorial style deviated from the norm a bit. So, where I feel like most directors will think about visuals first, put together an edit, and then soundtrack it after the fact, Mm -hmm. he does all the sound first. Oh, interesting okay in terms of like hiring yeah he hires a sound crew the sound designer the composer and then he starts looking for visual stuff but then in post-production at least with mothman prophecies he would cut the soundtrack first and then edit around that
1: Yeah, I mean, that maybe explains why I felt the way I did revisiting this because I told you both off mic that I was having some difficulty or not difficulty. I was surprised at the way that some of the editing was done and also some of the kind of recreation sequences because they do feel unlike what most people were doing at the time.
0: I don't know. I was watching this I was like, this feels very early 2000s to me, but maybe it reminds reminds me of music videos of the early 2000s. Yeah, I think stylistically, there's a
2: lot of uh, just like the types of colors used throughout the film. Mm -hmm. um, Some of the the cuts some of like the the weird um like you said joe like the the shifts in the film during flashbacks or during uh scenes that are meant to be um kind of representing the weirdness going on they feel out of place almost in that way and but again like i'm, I'm happy to give my view on why i think that's the case because I, I think it's a it's a really neat um creative choice i think in the context of this whole uh
0: story What are your views on why that's the case?
2: So I think it's – I mean, I think it does a really good job of representing the subjective experiences that witnesses of strange things have. It feels like a very – uh, you know, when you read into different accounts of people who who have seen, and this is independent of Mothman prophecies, but who have, like, encountered a ghost or a UFO or something that uh, was just really strange and bizarre, there's, uh, there's a lot of sense of things feeling surreal, like time feels differently, and there's an energy mm-hmm. that people tend to report. And so I think it's just kind of doing its job of – the film already has, like, a very um, creepy, highly strange vibe, and I mm-hmm. think, again, like, the score helps a ton with that. I actually just – rewatch this um i've well i i usually rewatch this a few times a year anyway but (laughs) (laughs) but I actually in preparation for this i rewatched this and i started it at like three in the morning not even remembering that it's two hours long and honestly like for me it's just like throwing myself into this world it's just like a really lovely feeling that feels like unlike you know other types of films that were maybe i have a little bit less of a of a personal connection to the content so yeah i think it's i think it's stylistically to kind of set apart the the surreal nature of some of these experiences and just kind of like it does in you know it may be to folks memories who've encountered strange stuff it feels almost fever dream like like oversaturated mm. or like the zooming is really weird or you feel you know it feels almost like a like a nightmare and i think that yeah. there, there's something very right. like l- lynchian
0: and surreal about that well I, there's something about it, even though this is kind of a studio film. I mean, it's Screen Gems as, as the distributor and Lakeshore Entertainment as the, as the production company. So it, it comes kind of from an indie scene, but it's still, I mean, this was a big release in 2002. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm surprised, honestly, because this doesn't feel very much like a studio film. Outside of Richard Gere, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's got the big name actors. It's got a decent size, like this is what we would call a mid-range film we don't make these kinds of movies anymore like films that are somewhere between about 20 and 60 million they're less common
0: let's bear in mind so this comes out the exact same year as murder by numbers that we covered two (laughs) two weeks ago that had a budget of 50 million dollars this is about 32 million dollars yeah. Which is
2: wild considering the difference in like the what they do with that money in this mm-hmm. like the effects. Oh, yeah. I'd imagine that movie was probably expensive because of like Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock,
0: yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but 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 I'm sure Richard Gere got a big payday on this. And obviously, yeah, the bridge climax, I'm sure ate a lot of the budget up. Right. Yes. But, okay, so going back to Pellington, though, so I'm I'm going back into his career again. So, you know, he leaves MTV in 1990. He starts doing poetry films for PBS, commercials, more music videos. Um, He makes his feature directorial debut with the indie film Going All the Way. And I gotta, have either one of y'all heard of this movie?
2: I have heard of it. Yeah, I've never, I, I don't remember if I've seen it. I'm gonna look that up right now.
0: Well, it stars Ben Affleck, Rachel Weisz, and Rose McGowan. Huh.
2: Okay. Oh, I definitely remember this poster for sure. I've never seen the movie though.
0: Well, so he gets a $3 million budget for that, but then he's handed $25 million to direct a movie called Arlington Road. And there it is. (laughs) Hey, Joe, have you seen Arlington Road? Uh, I've not seen it in a very long time So my memory
1: is quite dodgy But I remember people being like Ooh, this is kind of a, a flashy But also trashy thriller
0: I love it Well, th- that's what I'm saying So so Ari <laughs> it was one of the first movies He made me watch that I'd never seen When we started dating He had the DVD and he was like Oh my god, like, I used to watch this all the time When I was growing up <laughs>
1: That's too funny. I remember people talking about, like, there's a twist in it, and Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, oh, is this, like, a weird sequel to Speed because it's Jeff Bridges and Bombs, isn't it? Yeah,
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, partially, yeah. Yeah, it's basically Jeff Bridges and his wife, Hope David. It's it's something about, like, I guess there were a lot of fears about terrorism in, like, the late 90s, um, before um, Mm 9-11, of course, but it's basically that he gets new neighbors and Tim Robbins and Joan Cusack, and he thinks they are right-wing terrorists, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
2: it's 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 really fascinating actually. I don't know that it's a movie that could be made the same way now no. or at all.
0: Um, That's without, why I laughed.
1: Sorry, just for context, I laughed because I was just like, "This would be made into a very different movie yeah. if we made it nowadays." <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, I think I mean I think of it akin to movies like um, topics like uh, oh, Life of David Gale, like something that yes. is very very um, prickly for people, and it, and it's very controversial to have films. Yeah, and the thing is, I love that movie too. So I really like these kind of movies that kind of had the balls to show, you know, really kind of reflect a lot of things and fears going on in the mm-hmm. world. Which again, it's like oklahoma city bombing in the 90s and waco mm. and so like that's really what that fed into but
1: oh that's right we were afraid of domestic terrorism but we yeah. recognize it was mostly white dudes
0: <laughs> yeah although you i mean joan cusack doesn't have a ton to do in that movie but the, the moments where she does get to be like evil it's like it's a, the exact opposite of her adam's family values character like she's playing things she's very exactly close to scary. the rest yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. although i will say joe um you should have you seen life of david gale not in forever okay i people hated it when it came out yes. critics like piled on it um i we should watch that with uh with joe Ari. <laughs> oh, okay. i love it
2: i no, it's and i and i'm totally like aware that now if i were to show that to people who didn't know in advance what it's about mm-hmm. probably i would like piss some people off or
1: like
2: <laughs> something like that it's i mean it's kind of it's a kind of spicy movie in the terms of like the different messages p- putting oh yeah
0: there. but that's what that's why it's so interesting but I'm, yeah Kevin Spacey, though. Um, Anyway, (laughs) so Pellington is editing Arlington Road. Um, This would have been, like, late 98. And the head of Lakeshore Entertainment goes to him, Hey, dude, I've got your next movie. It's called The Mothman Prophecies. And it's all about this weird shit that happened in West Virginia in the 60s. Um, (laughs) And as enticing as that pitch was, he passed on it because, A, he doesn't like multitasking. So he was still mixing Arlington Road. He was like, eh, I'm going to take a break from films, go back to commercials, like, do something easy for a bit. I don't even know if he read the script which um it was written by richard hattam so a couple years go by and the head of lake shore comes back to him and goes hey we rewrote the script for the mothman movie could you please take a look again so he reads it and he passes on it again because this version of the script was basically a hokey creature feature that just didn't interest him and Hmm. every subsequent draft they gave him kept trying to make this mothman creature very overt which again he was like i don't do like creature feature type shit that sounds stupid right but he could get the script out of his head and he was like, well, there's a way to make this good. So he went and read the source <laughs> material, John Keel's 1975 book, The Mothman Prophecies. And Ari, right, I know you've talked about it a little bit, but is there anything else mm-hmm. you want to add onto it before I kind of go further into the production?
2: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I've read I've I've revisited this book again. I read it first for the first time, maybe like seven, eight years ago. I've been revisiting it the last week or so, just to kind of refresh my memory. And and I don't know, it's just a really interesting book because it's very much like procedural vignettes. You know, Mm. it's kind of like him reporting about different encounters he's had with people in the area, um, doing interviews about weird things that have happened to them. Mothman, of course, is a part of that. You know, people seeing um seeing this big winged creature that resembles a moth and meets a man i guess <laughs> but um but yeah people are reporting these things near um what they call the tnt area It was like an old like area of bunkers essentially but people seeing that but again that's only it's only a, a i would say if you were to pull all that out of the book like anything that explicitly mentions mothman it's a very small percentage of what's Kind of the book is really about because the book is really a lot more about it's about the place, right? Ish. It's about Point Pleasant, but it's about like kind of high strangeness in general. And 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 uh, Keel is a you know, someone who's investigated the unknown at the time and he's a journalist. Um, and he he was just very fascinated by this and the different accounts and the similarities across accounts. Mm. So the book really goes into a lot of like people reporting seeing unidentified flying objects um, the, uh, men in black, like, so these, the, the term men in black, it's, um, used to represent basically like a, a shadow agent, I guess, of the government that's trying to, that is aware of the existence of weird shit and basically mm-hmm. is trying to keep it under wraps and mm-hmm. investigate. So people would report getting visits by strange men wearing dress kind of oddly. And for the, for the area where the, where, uh, where this took place. Uh, speaking with strange accents just kind of looking vaguely not human like a little bit humanoid like and so yeah. um, so that's you know that's a big chunk of it there's a lot of like fuckery with the phone lines that that happened that a lot of people were reporting hearing really weird uh, sounds that sounded like beeping or, or sounded like static or breathing and then when they would slow down the recordings or reanalyze them it would actually be more like uh, tones. Like, slow okay. tones that they were hearing. So so there's a lot of weird shit that happened. And there's even, like, talks of, like, people reporting poltergeists in their homes fucking with their houses after they'd seen something weird in the sky. So it really expands, really, a, a big chunk of what constitutes high strangeness at all. Well, mm-hmm.
0: So do you think, though, I mean, like, cause I, this is not like a one-to-one adaptation of the book, right? It's more like we're taking elements or, I guess, witness accounts and incorporating them into this story.
2: Ish, yeah. So so what it really does is it kind of, I want to say it takes the vibe and theme of the book and attempts to streamline it a bit more through the story of the Mothman. Again, because it's kind of probably the most singular figure to come out of this lore, because again, no one had ever heard of this type of creature at that point. And so this was his birth. And so it is different than, you know, UFOs and ghosts and things that maybe other people have chatted about and researched about for a while. So um yeah, so using Mothman kind, of, it's more of like a symbolic, I guess, adaptation of the book, if that or thematic right. adaptation um right. around a story that is Mostly taking from, you know, the witness accounts and then what happens in this uh, with the Silver Bridge, obviously it takes narrative, you know, a lot of narrative liberties to make things flow differently. But sure, the um, all of the things that you see, the weird things that you see happen in the movie, there's at least some kind of analog to that in the book of someone recounting something very similar to them, even if it wasn't the characters uh, inspired by the real people.
0: Well, Pellington liked the book a lot more than the script, um, because, <laughs> according to him, there was a lot of space there for visuals and sound design. So, again, sure. he's, he's yeah. going back into, like, what he knows best, which makes sense. So, he asked the Lakeshore Entertainment guy, he's like, hey, give me a month, and I'm going to hire two of my friends to do a rewrite of the script. And these guys, Louis Clark and Ernest Morero, they were big into film noir and film subjectivity in a way that Pellington liked. And so, they changed some of the reactions of the script to things to make it more oblique um they took away a lot of the expository answers the script gave and the over explanations and they Mm -hmm. then would introduce more questions instead of giving those answers which interestingly enough was frustrating for some reviewers at the time Mm -hmm. i saw a lot of critics that were like it doesn't seem like it knows what it wants to do or what it wants to be and when you hear like what ari just talked about it's kind of like well that's kind of the point point. yeah Uh, yeah. i would
1: also argue because i mean it very much sounds like the book is written in the same way but like richard gear is a journalist so it naturally makes sense that he would be going around conducting these interviews asking questions getting answers that lead to new questions and new avenues for him to report and investigate on yes yeah yeah that is literally um
2: you know something watching the movie again now you know with years after After reading the book the first time and then just kind of dipping back into it and having more awareness now of my own, you know, deep dives into high strangeness and and just weird things in general, you know, like Mm -hmm. kind of like these really cosmic mysteries that people have been kind of obsessed with for, you know, forever since the dawn of time. Like it's it's one of those things that it's makes life a little more interesting to think like, hey, what we know right now and what we see. Um, What if that was just like a sliver of what's really there? And this sure. is really what it what it gets into. And I think as humans, you know, when we're approaching topics like the unknown, the supernatural, the spiritual, the otherworldly, we only have our own, you know, kind of like our own scripts and schemas to apply to that. So we try to understand that through what we already know as people, you know, this is the logic mm-hmm. of you know, being a human on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And and what I like about this movie and what it does kind of explicitly do with um with the character that we'll talk about a little bit later, but it really kind of opens it up to a bigger conversation about things like belief and spirituality and also well, like the the mysteries of the universe. It really is kind mm-hmm. of like broadly about that, which again, no one in our lifetime will ever have answers to all of that that are going to be
1: satisfactory i guess so not to everybody for sure
0: right right and even like one of the reviews i saw that was like oh like he can't decide if he wants the mock man to be a demon or a mythical figure or a that monster or whatever point. and i'm like that's, that's, that's the, the fucking
2: point, point. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah
1: yeah oh i have a lot to say about that <laughs> Because it's going to be an angel to some people, it's going to be this demon who's foreshadowing death and disaster everywhere it goes. And like, my biggest surprise rewatching this from a contemporary perspective is that even though you said, Ari, there's religion or like religious implications in the way that people react to things like faith and Mm -hmm. what we understand of that there's no priest character in here. And that yeah. really surprised Thank me. Thank
0: God. Well, and, and, and especially given where we are in the country, like this is a small yep. conservative town in it West Virginia. Like, and it's never like, I mean, it's there, it's there as like the setting, but it's never like the point of any of the scenes or the conversations we're having.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think what, I think the interesting part about that is how, you know, I think one of the lines even as, um, you know, with uh, the Gordon character, who is uh, Will Patton mm-hmm. that's um is oh like we're like we're Christians, like we're you're lucky I'm a Christian because he could have shot right. him or whatever the case is. So like Because he's good people. Yeah, that nod, but I think too it's like this idea of like, okay, what happens then whenever your belief system, which includes certain things being real in certain beliefs, um, kind of get turned on their head a bit because this other stuff happening is just really bizarre and doesn't fit in that box. And so I think right. it's a really like it kind of is a a perfect spot for this weird shit to be happening and for people to be like really kind of questioning like what does this mean about life and us and reality. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, okay. So after they, they 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 use that book, you know, they they turn this version of the script in and and. Lakeshore sends this version over to Richard Gere, who, okay, so here's the thing. It sounds like he was, I don't want to say the mastermind behind this, but very much like a driving force behind wanting to get this movie made. So I have to mm-hmm. wonder if Richard Gere is like a secret cryptid nut. Um, or <laughs> or, or so. he saw a juicy part for himself. Well, or, or he read the book and was like, oh, because also, you know, the marketing of the film very much used the base on a true story that was so <laughs> popular at this time. Yeah, so. Right. so but nevertheless, they sent him the script, and Richard Gere was like, "Oh my god, I, th- this is it!" So he meets with uh, Pellington over dinner in New York and discusses, and they all discuss the vision for the film. And Lakeshore calls Pellington the next day and is like, "Hey, Gere loved it. Let's go. We're gonna do it." And I have to believe that the only reason a movie that ha that it was about Mothman got made is because it had a big star like yes. Richard Gere championing it. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. Sidebar. This is the same year that Unfaithful comes out. So this is a very good year
0: for Um, Richard This is also the same year Chicago comes out. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my (laughs) God. He was was killing it. So it's really funny that when you're like, oh, Unfaithful, okay, Chicago, Mothman prophecies. What an mm-hmm. interesting 2002. <laughs>
1: <laughs> One of these things, a little bit different than the others.
0: Well, so interestingly enough, though, for the role of Connie, the Laura Linney role, they had actually met and wanted Joan Allen. Could see it. Well, I, I totally could, too. But mm-hmm. Richard Gere had done Primal Fear back in 1996 with Laura Linney, and he was mm-hmm. like, no, 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 I want her. Please ask her first. Such a good- <laughs> That's a great movie,
2: too. Yeah. oh so oh, good so, so good. good i love it <laughs> yeah so so a little bit of of trivia again and i'll chime in here when, yeah. when i can so richard Gere's character john klein is based on john keel the journalist mm-hmm. but he's kind of split keel is split between that character and then there's like a, a character alan later. Bates character yeah alan Bates' character so he's kind of split between those two uh laura linney's character, like the analog to her character in the book is actually um, Mary Heyer, who is a journalist in the book. So it's not a it's not a police person. And Mary Heyer actually had I think she has a niece named Connie. So I'm guessing
0: that's where they got her her character name and from. And that's why Deborah Messing's character is named Mary. Mary,
2: right. And then Confusing. um and then Wood <laughs> yeah. uh, so yeah, it was it's really kind of interesting how they chose, but I, it's kind of like a reinterpretation of A thematic reinterpretation where it's like, yeah, this is kind of the story you know, and we're going to tell it through this lens. And so the Gordon character is actually based on a very popular – the person who met in real life, uh, you know, quote unquote, Indrid Cold, um, who reported like being very close to Indrid Cold. And this is – oh, his name is Woody Derenberger. Um. So he's actually written books about his encounters with Indrid Cold, and his daughter even has uh, – Tanya, she's written a book, too, basically stating that they were friends with Indrid Cold and Indrid Cold's uh, oh. space family for most of their lives. Oh my gosh, um, and okay. she Yeah, so this – I mean, this is like a real – Known person, but uh, but yeah, they, re- I mean, it, it they really kind of had to uh hone in a little bit on um, on the Gordon character's experiences. Like, it, it, I'm guessing they were trying to ground it more in quote unquote reality and not get too wacky with it. Like, oh, I went on the ship to Lanulos, which is where you know, Injured Cold is from, apparently. So, you know, they didn't include all that stuff, but that is something that, that the real life Gordon character, Woody Derenberger, who claims to have experience.
0: Well, so, okay, so they move into filming, and the shoot, which took place in Pittsburgh, um, which I found very surprising, uh, seems to go over well. Um, After all the script rewrites, everyone was like, hey, yeah, we're not doing a creature movie. We're never going to show this creature, minus, like, one bad c- split second cgi shot in the first 10 minutes of this thing oh trace by the way the
1: reason they probably shot it in pittsburgh is because it's got that industrial feel to it right because mm, this is yeah. going to be a bit of a like mining mm-hmm. natural resources sort of yeah.
0: location exactly but yeah they never had a studio breathing down their neck being like oh can you like b- get make it more creaturey? can you get more scares in well with the exception of one particular scare but i'm gonna save that for the plot summary okay but when it came time to market it everyone was struggling with the word Mothman. Um, There were hesitations about (laughs) having that word in the title of the film because, I mean, ask my sixth grade teacher, that sounds really stupid. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So at one one point they were going to call it The Man in the Dark, but then someone was like, well, instead of calling it The Mothman, why don't you just call it The Mothman Prophecies? Like, that sounds more ominous yeah and so they were like yeah sure let's do that (laughs) can you imagine
1: the men in the dark and you show up just waiting for what a slasher i mean that title is not representative of this movie (laughs) that's it comes
0: at night syndrome that's like where's the it it doesn't come Mm -hmm. at night (laughs) where's the foot where's the foot oh my god we hit a boot (laughs) (laughs) throwing some scary movie in there for (laughs) y'all (laughs) <laughs> uh, so okay the Mothman prophecies was released on january 25th 2002 against a slew of other new releases including a walk to remember the mm. count of monte cristo and kung pao enter the fist so well, hmm. well i was kind of like oh january this seems like a weird time to release this movie because it, uh, again at the time well i was gonna say at the time this is when like shitty horror movies would come out in january but sure. i mean even like I mean Count of Monte Cristo is pretty good. A watch member is like critically eh but like people love it. Yes. It opens in the number six spot with 11.2 million and goes on to gross 35.7 million uh, domestically and 19.6 overseas for a worldwide total of 55.3 million against that aforementioned mm. production budget of $32 million.
1: I was going to say, I remember this being not a bad start, but that's hard to come back from, even with a budget that is sort of mid tier.
0: Yeah, a- a- and it, it makes the money back before marketing costs. So it wasn't a flop, but I, well, I don't think it was the slam dunk success they were hoping it would be right i'm
2: just curious to like as to what kind of slam dunk success you know they were thinking this would be it's such a strange movie with with it's got cult appeal right it definitely does yeah and I think I think it actually hit that sweet spot where like everyone who was curious to see it did see it and probably loved it like I did
0: I just mean like if you're making a movie you give it a budget of 32 million dollars you hope probably that it makes at least double that or you're hoping
1: for a big video rental as we mentioned in Murder, Ambers this is the era where
0: okay well this will probably do double the business on DVD I wonder okay maybe that's why January and February were always like the doldrums right because is there something About oh, because then it would take six months for movies to hit VHS slash DVD. Sometimes now we're talking Halloween. Yeah, so so you have it in theaters in January, make whatever money it can, and then by the time summer hits, kids are out of school. You've got the video rental services, Mm, right? Hmm. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe we cracked it. Maybe we.
1: Here's the thing. I know at least one of our listeners has got to have worked in either a Blockbuster or some other kind of video rental store. Let us know if you think that could be the case.
0: I did work at Blockbuster, but but only from like 08 to 2010.
1: I'm talking like managers, the people who made the decisions, not the people who rented the movies.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, Not the yeah. underlings. Like, Not yet. Yes. <laughs> the people Not with the minimum wage lot. workers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, critical response was mixed. Um, we're looking at a 52% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 5.5 5 out of 10. It's got mm. a 52 out of 100 on Metacritic. And Letterboxd users have given it a 6 out of 10. That's really all I have, although I will say, because um, this is particularly timely, um, last month, so in October of 2023, Mark Pellington announced that a streaming series was currently in development, while stating that further details would be revealed at a later date. So, of course, this is we're in November of 2023 right now, so we don't have those details, but um, mm-hmm. I'm very curious. I am so
2: excited at the prospect of this. I think
1: it's... It- Perfect. It, it, this it is. This could see a great renaissance. I will say, though, as soon as I read that on the cheat sheet, and I'm curious to know what you two think about this, I can imagine somebody like cognetti the guy who does Mm -hmm. the hell house house, house house movies Mm -hmm. i can imagine him tackling this in the same way that he does his visuals for those films and it could be like that would be weird and interesting hey well okay do you think it
0: would be like a a scripted series or would it be like a a paranormal investigation series no
1: there
2: are too many Mm. shows like that um and also like the those areas like Point Pleasant there are some other kind of smaller communities that are famous because of things like this but Weird. again like i don't i don't know that like um they could get funding and really like get their community on board to make a whole sure. thing like a whole docu series about it in a way that hollywood would just in the way hollywood would and so i'd imagine it is because of all the um the content in the book even there're just so many different like kind of one-off stories that they could adapt you know multiple seasons uh, around Mm. these things and maybe even and maybe even fictionalize some of it and tie some things together in a really cool way so i don't know i'm excited i think it could be a really cool you know mixed bag of just weird shit and i would and i hope they hold on to that because it is that's kind of what makes it so intriguing to me it's just like that very strange off-putting vibe
0: well i think it's something that would be easier to get made today too than it would have been back in 2002 Right. Right. And I think the appetite for
1: something like a TV series mm-hmm. version of this is also better because there's just more places you could chop it around to. Like back mm-hmm. in the day, you didn't have streaming sites in 2002 right. that you could just be like, hey, do you want eight parts of this scripted cryptid series?
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think too, like, the, you know, general audiences. Are maybe more likely to be into this now, like maybe more interest. It's not as much of a, I mean, it is still a, a like it's its own niche in the well, world, we can but like, the yeah. internet for that, though, right? No, for sure. The internet, and I think just in general, like there's a lot of interest in high strangeness. Like, think about all these Discovery Channel and Netflix mm-hmm. shows about ghost hunting and things like that. That people are really they, I mean, they they do well, I mean, they keep making them, so someone's watching them. <laughs> well-
0: I do right. think, though, I mean, like cryptid adaptations, be it film or the in the rare instance television about cryptid type things, um, tend to not be great. Um, <laughs> like I, I, yeah, Ari, I know that we have you have like some Bigfoot movies that you really like, but like there are there isn't a long history. I'm going to say specifically horror leaning cryptid films, like. The documentary stuff that you watch, I think, is more on the up and up. But, like, you know, we got a lot of schlock coming out of cryptids. Oh,
2: no. Like, as fiction goes, like, there there are very, I would say, very few, like, what people would consider quality films and or shows about cryptids. Like, Bigfoot, even anything kind of spooky like that.
1: I think part of the struggle is actually what this film does best, which is how much do you show? How much do you hint Mm -hmm. at? How do you create atmosphere and scares, even, without... Either having to blow your budget and, you know, oh, I guess we're going to have to pay for a Nessie.
0: That's Mm going to be $10 million. But I think that's what makes The Mothman so interesting because the movie and it sounds like the book itself is about the people in the town, not Mm -hmm. the creature itself. Whereas a lot of the horror fiction versions of these things are like, oh, yeah, it's a monster killing people.
1: But how wild is that? Because as horror fans, we're always complaining that we don't give two fucks about human characters. We just want to see the monsters. We want to see the kills and that kind of stuff. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think as much as this movie is about a three star for me. So I think I'm falling into that average. Yeah. I think that it gets certain things so fucking right. It does.
0: It's a fascinating movie. I I think I find it much more interesting than, like, rewatchable, if that makes any sense. But, uh... But, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Uh, But... but On that note, let's talk about what happens in this movie.
1: (laughs) Okay, but maybe before we go into this plot, I think we should have a conversation about what specifically is attractive about cryptids and maybe the Mothman himself or herself or itself to queer people.
2: Well, I will say, so... um two of my favorite favorite figures and and these are like investigators in high strangeness are Greg and Dana Newkirk who um they they created the show Hellier that's become a bit of a cult phenomenon in the um high strangeness circles and then the circles of people who like to watch weird stuff um Mm -hmm. especially real weird stuff that appears to be rooted based on reality based on you know people's real experiences so um they're just lovely they have a podcast called uh the haunted objects podcast and so they talk about um they collect they have a museum of haunted objects and they tour they just toured and they're just really lovely humans um i am in like the you know the VIP fan club or whatever where so we get to like sit in and do like live séances and they do Q&As and they're very interactive with their with this community but i i bring all that up because they love Mothman um th- that's you know a lot of interest in that lore it, it it actually informs a lot of what happens in the hellier story that they that they told and so one thing i believe it was Dana um they had an episode on the Mothman uh, prophecies film, and they actually had something, I believe, from the filming or from Point Pleasant that they were, you know, talking about as the object of the week or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dana really pointed out, like, there's a lot of talk about perspective and about what do you bring, what expectations are you bringing to experiences that are typically unexplained or uh, anomalous. And so this idea of like, it, and the film touches on this, like, if you think, if you think it's a it's a demon you're gonna see a demon if you think it's an angel you're gonna see an angel so it's and this is something i'll get into in a little bit but you know what she talked about is like mothman is is symbolic for that community and kind of bringing the community together and and representing like hey we all like kind of experience like this is a very strange thing uh a strange part of a community's identity to to really be i mean you they they have a mothman statue they like i said they do their festival um, by the way, Google the Mothman statue. That that boy has some cakes. Got some yes.
0: ass.
1: <laughs> I was actually going to reference that as like one of the weird things. Because uh, I discovered that kind of like the Babadook, the Mothman has become this kind of sexualized creature figure within <laughs> the queer community. So he... It's yeah. often depicted as, like, a quite tall, very muscular, often half-naked creature that people are like, ooh, you know, I would swipe a credit card in that statue's ass if I ever got over to Point Pleasant. <laughs>
2: I definitely will uh, when I do. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think, you know, kind of to that point, though, is is she kind of just kind of highlighted, in general, high strangeness. It's very um, fringe, you know, like, it's very much a space for people to fully own their weirdness and the things that they're mm. interested in. It in. And mm. that is ex- inherently queer. Mothman is inherently queer because it's an othered, you know, it's an othered experience. It's, a, it's this, you know, inexplicable anomaly in time that happened in this community that was by all definition, a very traditional. So, right. yeah, I mean, I see it as more, it's like a, it's a representation for the otherness and for being different and being confusing to some people. You know, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So maybe that that feels inherently just super queer to me.
1: Yeah, that was definitely what I encountered when I started to look into cryptids in general. And I knew I didn't have to go very far because you were going to be here to answer <laughs> I was gonna say, all the <laughs> questions. <jokes, laughs>
0: y- you got to come on one of these ghost hunting trips with us and just experience it.
1: Well, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I like what you said that it it feels almost like. A community, right? Like, people Mm -hmm. are uniting around these shared values and interests, but they are on the fringe, they're on the margins, they're outliers, and yeah, are you talking about cryptids and cryptozoology, or are you talking about queers? And maybe there's an intersection, and I'm willing to bet there is.
2: There totally is. There totally is. And actually, um, so there is a theory that was proposed, I'm trying to remember the, um, the writer's name, George Hansen. And so basically... It's this idea of what is common among these weird experiences that people report. And so uh, he proposed this um, idea that there are three um, components to the what at the, he called parapsychology, but basically just anything highly strange. Mm-hmm. And so that tend to be um, typical. And so one of them is liminality. So the idea of being in a transitional space hmm so this is like there are always there tend to be a lot of sightings of weird things along bodies of water along uh, that are like rivers uh, uh bridges places that see a lot of human traffic but no one ever really stays in that spot right. so that's uh and then we know about liminal spaces like i, I wrote an article on boy discussing about that in in some recent horror films but um, But yeah, there, I mean, you can Google liminal space is creepy and you'll see like these YouTube videos of just fi- places like airports, but completely empty. So right. things that you would expect to be highly trafficked, but like sometimes they're not. And when they're not, it's really fucking creepy. It's really weird. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's one, um, you know, one aspect. So again, that would make sense if we're, if we're to believe this theory like, oh, there's a the Ohio river, there's a bridge. So yeah, of course, liminality, it's a uh, people are flowing through this area. And then uh marginality. So it's like people who are on the fringes, people who are like less likely to be believed, I guess. Um mm-hmm. so you know, like queer people, you know, it's things like um the weirdest shit happens to the people who are kind of on the edges of society, it feels like, um, and looking at a lot of these accounts and whatnot. So uh so that's really fascinating to me because again, you think about like a rural community, like it's a bit it's a bit on the fringes of society. It's not like the hippest place, right? So Makes sense. Why would, why would Mothman or UFOs visit New York City? I don't know. Like, I mean, it's, it feels more like.
0: ask independence day i was gonna say independence <laughs> day i'm curious about that Ro- but <laughs> queer director roland emmerich has words for you sir <laughs> Whereas
1: i just flash back instead to the faculty with Elijah wood saying you know they're not going to go to these big cities they're going to go through the back door uh-uh. well
0: I, I i'm pretty sure that line was a direct nod to independence day 100. <laughs> <100%.
2: laughs> yeah i would i would imagine too and, um and yeah, this, uh, and then anti-structure is another, is the third. And essentially it's this idea, you know, these, this is all about ideas of like being on the fringe or being in a space that's very, there's fluid energy going through it. So there's a lot of people mm-hmm. going through, but no one really stays. There's a lot of people here that like, oh, maybe if they were to tell this story to a national news station, they would be laughed at because they're like, yeah, you just sound like a kook from the country. So, right. um, so yeah, this idea of like, and this idea of, of someone who maybe is like, just generally not likely to be believed. And so again, it's a, it's a directional thing. I think it's a really fascinating way of just kind of acknowledging the queerness inherent to these experiences and how a lot of it has to do with being on the outside of what others would consider normal. Mm hmm.
0: Oh man. Well thank you for that. Um I
2: really I mean, am let's... Professor Ari tonight. This is
1: lovely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just not about the field you actually have a PhD Right. I don't in. ever get to talk about this, but Well, let's talk about Deborah Messing before she disappears from this movie. Okay. Oh no, yes. So the film
1: opens with overhead shots uh, before Washington Post reporter John Klein, a.k.a. Richard Gere, ditches his holiday because, yes, folks, apparently this is a Christmas movie.
0: Um, In multiple timelines, mm. too. <laughs>
1: right. Yes, yeah, several timelines. So he's ditching the holiday Christmas party so that he and his wife, Mary, who, yes, is played by Deborah Messing. They want to go and fuck in the closet of the house that they're going to buy. And this is lovely. Looks great.
0: This is one of the horniest couples I've seen in a mainstream Seriously. film. And, and they're. Incredibly hot So who can blame them (laughs) Uh, Guess the age difference Between Richard Gere And Deborah Messing I'm not shading I'm just playing a game 17 years Close It's about 19 years (laughs) Okay (laughs) Yeah It it was weird
1: Because I definitely Remembered her being In this movie And thinking Oh I wish she was in A bit more of it Because I liked her And then realizing When was Will and Grace Is this before
0: Or Oh no So this is like Really peak Will and Grace Because I think Will and Grace Started in 98 Eight. So this they would have been in season like three or four when they were no season two or three when they were filming it season three or four when it was released. Okay, because this is then weirdly stunt casting, right? A hundred percent. I remember twelve year old me being like, "Oh my god, Grace is in a horror movie." But it's and it's, like,
1: it's well. TV prestige, right? So she right. was a big name for people at home, but she wouldn't have been considered a quote-unquote movie draw. No,
0: but they would try three years later with that awful, boring movie, The Wedding Date. Her, it's a her, Dermot Mulroney, Amy oh, Adams, yeah. um, and it is not good. A good cast. <laughs>
1: Okay, so yeah, so they're, they they are bought this house, they're so in love, they're shagging everywhere they possibly can, to the yeah. point where they get interrupted in the new house and get in the car and drive as fast as they possibly fucking can so they can get home and fuck in the old house. <laughs> <laughs> and this is when they get into a car accident, so Mary is distracted because she sees a flying black figure with red eyes coming at the car, and we get this pretty solid car accident where she just
0: smashes her head into the driver's side window so this is the only like true like real glimpse of the mothman we are going to get i Mm -hmm. like that it is a split second shot if you freeze frame it it looks like shit sure so i appreciate the restraint yeah this is
1: how much i think you can get away with apart from you know we we do see a manifestation of ingrid cole and i always assume that he is a human form of the Mothman, but mm. I don't know. Maybe you two would disagree. But, yeah, I don't know that I want more of this. I don't need this thing flying above the city at later stages of the film.
0: To be honest, it's it's the witness accounts that I find the most scary. Like when, when I'm jumping ahead. But when that woman's mm-hmm. like, I saw it standing out in my backyard. Its head was about a foot away from those branches. So that would make eight it eight feet, feet tall. And I was like, just <laughs> hearing the accounts of it, to me is scary enough
2: yeah that's the thing too the book is has has so much of that um, mm-hmm. that's what makes it really effective is just you're reading. It's, I, I would say like if you can uh, listen to an audiobook even it's just kind of nice to hear someone tell the story um, you know verbally but like uh, yeah like even just moments of revisiting some of these I was like oh damn that is some creepy shit.
1: So I'm interested and I'm going to give full credit to Bloody Broad's podcast because this is the only reason I was even thinking of this film <laughs> but uh, seven years later we get a Mila Jokovic film called The Fourth Kind and oh. that about <laughs> yeah. Eight alien abductions. Mm-hmm. I never saw this one because it did not look super great, but it does have a similar kind of investigative recreationness
0: to it, right?
2: Yeah, it kind of does. Um it actually it the thing with that movie and it's it's okay um i think i'm gonna
0: say though this is one also that ari made me watch
2: <laughs> oh i don't even remember i don't even remember that but okay yeah <laughs> no because
0: you you kept being like oh my god melio and the aliens of fourth kind oh, you have to you, watch it you do love her yeah so I, what I, what I do, do love, love her, her. and but it's a thing where it's like I, I remember when it came out the reception was not that positive but it was very mm-hmm. much playing because it does this weird thing where it shows you the real footage and then oh. shows you the Mila Jovovich footage which is a reenactment of the real so,
2: footage. So so the right. so the issue with that though is the real footage is also fake
0: in that movie. Uh, yes. So they're both But I feel yeah. like people didn't know
2: that. No, it really they really were full on just lying to people um, and that was a <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a big issue with that movie. Like it was literal, straight up lies. Like trying to pass off this, um, you know, staged footage as as archive footage. But there, I mean, I get that there. There is they do have very similar, I guess, like uh, energies to them to a degree. And again, like I think it has. They it touches on other aspects of the lore that actually are really reflected in a lot of these other things like the owls and cause the mm, owls yeah. play a big part in that movie. And that's something that has linked has been linked to like UFO activity and all this stuff.
1: But, um, sure. Even to the point of David Lynch and twin peaks and stuff. Yeah, we're talking yeah. about the owls have seen things.
2: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, kind of same ballpark, but this is a much better execution. But, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think fourth kind is probably the more hokiness of it.
1: Sure, which, which I think is representative of what this film could have been yeah. yeah, if we had have aired into, oh, let's show them more of the Mothman. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so Mary kind of seems fine. We take her to the hospital. We give her an MRI. She's very upset because... uh she saw something and john did not and that is very upsetting to her so yeah we throw her through the mri machine and of course she's got a mothman tumor in her brain
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a glioblastoma but okay
1: <laughs> i mean freeze the frame because the image literally
0: looks like the shape of a mothman I'm in i'm sure brain. <laughs> i'm sure we don't know what the mothman looks like joe truly okay I yeah that's very that's very like rorschach reading joe like like what you see as mothman you're looking for the mothman so thus you saw the
1: mothman oh my god listeners write in and tell me that you also saw a mothman tumor well no because
0: now you're putting it in their head they're gonna go back and watch and be like oh my god that exactly. is a mothman
1: no no trace you you're just gonna be proven wrong i'm gonna be proven right this is how it's gonna be now we'll give you this joe so she so she has to stay in the hospital and she's like but I want you to be happy. And I'm just like, oh, they're
0: killing this bitch in one scene. They, I mean, like, I checked the time and I was like, wow, she really dies 10 minutes into this two-hour movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wild. I mean, she'll pop
1: back up in a couple of nightmares and hallucinations and stuff. But yeah, it is not Deborah's movie, for
2: Hallucinations, sure. quote unquote. You know,
0: It is really fun to hear Peloton talk about messing, though, because, so like, like again, her, her, I don't even say her biggest scene, but like the most... Uh, difficult scene for her to film was just her sitting in her hospital bed because we have all these close-ups of her face as she's like looking like darting around the room mm-hmm. and he's like yeah we had to just sit her there for hours and just have her sit completely still so we could Ugh. get all these shots of her and so she just put her walkman on remember those yeah. uh <laughs> and i'd be like do you need something she goes no i'm listening to my music <laughs> <laughs> that's what i would do i would love that <laughs> what's the
1: alternative you're like well I guess I'm getting paid to just lie here in this bed and look <laughs> listen, scared every two minutes listen to jams
2: and but I will say she kills that performance that her oh, oh she's, she's great. really
0: good in that part well I was gonna say like she sells fear very well to the yes. point where I actually would like to see her in more thrillers or horror films or same. in genre films yeah agree same. yeah
1: because we get her in kind of not great police procedurals later
0: on and mm. she's fine but it's oh i don't know i think we can expect more of her i will say though because i feel like her public life is kind of controversial because she's very or at least was very like vocally political on twitter like she was in that susan sarandon category of actresses Mm -hmm. i did love her cameo as herself in bros though oh yeah (laughs) it's very funny Oh,
2: so funny. I just love that she was just, like, full on in on the joke.
1: I am not Grace! I'm not Grace! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, she was. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to do it. PSA, folks. Bros is actually very funny and very clever. Even if it you is. don't like Billy Eichner, it's yes, cute. he is a lot. But it's a movie that's well worth supporting. A
0: hundred percent agreed.
1: I say this as a white gay. Obviously, I'm the target
0: demographic. Well, that's 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 def- that that was Ari's one complaint when we finished it. He was like, "It's very white, it's so white."
2: <laughs> but I really liked it. I, I mean, it's, I think as queer movies go, it's it's one that I one of the ones I enjoyed more.
0: It feels like an accurate representation of a certain segment of queer right lifestyle. That yeah. is it. That's that's the it right there. Mm-hmm.
1: That's the it that comes at night. So I need to. Um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna correct myself because I just so I I stated the theory earlier was George P. Hanson. That's actually the article. Um, who oh, okay. wrote the article? Um, it's actually a combination of Ar- Arnold Van Genup and Victor Turner's uh, writings about. um, basically like rituals and uh, religious stuff. So, um, so yeah, mm. liminality, marginality, and anti-structure, which is actually like anti-establishment or like the border between mm. chaos and order. So that's the oh, thing. Oh, God. That, that makes
1: sense. It. Yeah. yeah okay so Mary's in the hospital she tells John I want you to be happy get the fuck out of here so he just goes back to the crime scene the crime scene the accident scene and <laughs> he sees you know construction lights in the distance that could be re- inferred as red eyes mm-hmm. but he does also find strange marks on the car so it's you know six of one half a dozen of the other
2: I think this movie does that very well um, and I it's intentional like this idea mm-hmm. of having having some Uh, Things look like like pareidolia, so like you look at a cloud and you're like, "Oh, that looks like Homer Simpson or something." So Mm -hmm. that's what that that's what that concept is. But it's like your brain trying to make sense of things that you know kind of like otherwise looked like nonsense.
0: It handles uncertainty and, like, d- different perceptions very, very well. And I, I think mm-hmm. the character that's like, summarizes all of this and the effect it can have on us the most mm-hmm. is Laura Linney, which is giving in yeah. that talk later about the phone call he might be getting from Deborah Messing. Mm, yeah. I love that.
2: Yeah. I love that moment. That's a very, like, classic, like, whoever walks through that door or whatever, whoever calls, it's not going to be who you think it is. It's very, like, um, yeah, um bringing, you know, a uh, uh, pet cemetery. Style, but,
0: yeah. but no, but but, right. but that's where I mean. I, okay, Pet cemetery is a really good example, but I'm even—it's not quite a twenty-four level of quality here. But it's like this ultimately is like a very like intense study of grief, and yes, mm-hmm. that that is kind of what I found the most fascinating. Because yes, you can read into all the Mothman stuff, all the creatures have whatever, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, we are watching one man just struggle with the loss of his
1: wife. A hundred percent. Like, there's a point where I wrote in my notes, oh. Like Connie is basically saying it's okay to move on. And also maybe you could be with me because we have a connection. But yeah, this movie could very easily like you could tweak a couple of things and say, Oh, the horror is all about how awful trauma is, and that's uh-huh. why you saw a Mothman, but also you need to get back on the saddle. A hundred percent.
2: Yeah, and I think what what I think too, what I appreciate about it is that is not inherently separate from what this is you know what Mm -mm. this talk of like the things we can't understand or explain that is a lot of emotional experiences people have you know when someone passes away the question why why would this Mm -hmm. happen why me and it's like okay do we believe there's like a divine plan do we believe that it's all random and who gives a fuck anyway like i think that it's it's really touching on that because those are very similar questions that we ask in high strangeness. Like, okay, if this thing is real, why would it happen here? Why us? Mm-hmm. What's the bigger meaning? And so, I love that. I think it's a perfect, um, a perfect setup, even though it is completely fictional. Like the real John right. Keel didn't have a wife who who died of a you know a tumor or anything like that. A but
1: glioblastoma. Glioblastoma. Um, yeah. But a <laughs> uh, <and> tumor. <laughs> but again, but I
2: but I like the idea. It's because this movie does talk a little bit about like fate and time mm-hmm. and like the. The messiness of time, that time is not, you know, in some of these spheres, it's not really chronological the way that we view it. It's it's Mm -hmm. kind of a lot of the theories. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just like a neat, it's a neat setup for this type of exploration for a movie that otherwise like y'all have said could have just been like a really cheap ass creature feature.
1: Yeah, it could have been a cheap ass creature feature or it could have been a quote-unquote elevated metaphor movie about trauma and grief mm-hmm. and it finds a nice middle ground. Yes. Yeah. It's
0: it's like this like the, this perfect. Um it, it's a adequate balance it's Perfect. The two. <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect.
1: <laughs> okay. So John gets the phone call or he he realizes oh, She dead. Mary's dead. So we we know that he's very upset because we see him sitting in an empty snowy field so that's a good visual representation of that
0: <laughs> and then
1: he's packing up the hospital room and this orderly is just kind of lurking and says well it you can feel good about this because she knew it was coming that's why she was always drawing pictures of all of those angels and then you get these horrifically scary <laughs> images of a mothman i was
0: gonna- which okay I, at first i was like why the fuck how the, how would you misconstrue any of this for angels however mm-hmm. i and i could be wrong i do believe i do believe in biblical lore or whatever you want to say yep. like you can't look at angels because they are so they'll burn your fucking eyes out well i don't want to say horrifying but like it's just something where it's like the human mind can't comprehend what an angel looks like so Mm -hmm. i guess i could see how someone who Leans religious would view these as drawings of angels.
2: Yeah, I mean, ish. I mean, angels. I, I, like again, I'm looking it up. But, like in Ezekiel, there's a description about angels being covered with eyes, which is what I always remembered. Oh um, of like biblically accurate. So I'm like, that's fucking gross. Like I, I'll take oh. the the human with the with the cute white wings. <laughs> I,
0: I, I I will say this is like kind of related, but kind of not. But there's a video game series called Bayonetta about this woman who's a slut who has like guns on her hands and her <laughs> oh my feet. God, Tracy. Jesus. But I mean, like, but like, she's a good slut. Um, but but she fights angels, and the angels in the game are like, I don't want to say accurate representations because no one knows, obviously, what an angel looks like. But like, but they they take that quote, like, oh, they're covered in eyes. So like there's they're really grotesque looking yeah. angels, and it's really cool. But so, what she was drawing
2: was fucking creepy, and I don't know that I would have looked at that and been like, look at that cute angel,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: Also, hey, orderly, what the fuck are you doing looking through her drawings? Are those your (laughs) business? (laughs) Maybe she
2: shared them.
1: That's a thing. People do that in hospitals. She's like, you know what? I'm dying. Would you like to see my
0: art before I go? Just one more. I gotta get the red eye in. (laughs) Tell John red eyes. (laughs) And, And also that I would want him to be happy. And like, fuck Laura Linney. No sex. A ghost version of me will go tell the police chief that in Point Pleasant in two years, so it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'll be back in two years.
2: What I actually really like about this, though, is I remember the first time I saw the movie, in my mind, I was like, oh, this car accident caused her tumor. And it's like, no, the car accident is how how they discovered the tumor, which is, again, this idea of like fate or predicting something tied to mothman lore
1: or in a cynical view you say oh well the reason she was experiencing this is because her vision was compromised due to the mothman tumor yes
2: oh yeah yeah (laughs) but i think but again it's
1: like all the readings are valid
2: it's chicken or egg yeah like i think it's like it can be either direction
1: Mm Hmm. okay so we do jump ahead two years from this moment and John is doing well, reasonably well, professionally. You know, we see him on TV. He's doing political coverage. But socially, he's basically a pariah. So he's got a co-worker, Eddie, who's played by Sex and the City's uh, David Eigenberg.
0: OK, so I felt so bad. So, um, you know, I have my little cheat sheet that I send all of us, you know, beforehand. That's like, oh, yeah, like, what are like these famous cast members in here? <laughs> and I left off Eigenberg because I didn't recognize his name. And then when I saw him, I was like, what the? F- that's Sex and the City. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you, sir? <laughs> but I feel like, too, of this time, like you said earlier, Joe, you know, where it's like, oh, it's like TV famous. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of TV stars just trying to make it into movies and not... Not many of them made it, but it's funny. Mm-hmm. You're going flash forward 20 years because now we have a lot of film yeah, stars doing TV. Doing it backwards, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's like we talked about with Halloween 2 and Nurse Octavia Spencer.
0: Y- yes. <laughs> oh, Octavia yeah. Octavia <laughs> Daniels. Octavia
1: Daniels. Right, right. Nurse Octavia Daniels. <laughs> So, yeah, Eddie is trying to get him to come out. Hey, bang this chick that we'll never see. It's not important. Eddie's not really a character. He's here to remind us that John has a job that he is Mm -hmm. abandoning so he can go and pursue this passion project.
0: I just want to say, though, I would. Well, actually, I probably do have a job that would let me do that. And coincidentally enough, it is a newspaper. But this man is taking how many days of vacation? (laughs) But I don't know, I think that he's
2: not taking vacation, like, it's this idea that he's, oh, I'm working on, like, he ended up there, but then he's like, oh, yeah. oh I'm working on a story. So he's basically just full of shit, he's like, he's telling them he's working. Yeah. I love mm-hmm. that
0: we don't have, like, we never see his boss again, like, it's just David Igerber being like, man, he's, uh, he's going off the rails, he's are you gonna pissed. come back soon? You gotta
1: call him. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's not important. <laughs> it's not important at all. The movie tries to make it, like, it, it, this seems to exist only to satisfy, like, idiot fans who were like well what about his job Mm -hmm.
1: what is he just paying for this all out of pocket where are the per diems coming from
0: and bear in mind y'all i I feel like a reporter for the washington post probably would get paid a lot more than what um people like us (laughs) get paid to freelance for horror movie websites (laughs) yeah
1: yeah you would think so i would hope so (laughs) maybe back in 2002 maybe not now anymore i mean
2: yeah it's a very different type of profession and then it was like i mean at least like in like way back when the 60s yeah it was like john keel that's how he made his living and he spent oh, like mm, over a it year it was prestigious doing it was
0: well respected yeah that's actually something i wanted to ask you guys because the the real events took place in the 60s and the book is, a, is in the 60s mm-hmm. are you a little surprised this isn't a period piece I don't think it makes it sellable.
2: You know, I think I like that it's not. I like that everything's just kind of a little bit off because it really also leans into this idea of like, in another reality, this is maybe how this story could have played out. And it would have maybe right. been offset by 30 years or something. And this character actually. So that's it's like very much um, is what I, what it right. feels like to me when you read the book and watch this.
0: I I don't think there's anything in here that's like I mean outside of the use of cell phones, which we have mm-hmm. plenty of that, like nothing here is like, oh, like we couldn't have just set this in the sixties either. Right. Um I just think I, I just think there's something when you're doing a horror specifically, there is something scarier about setting things in the past because we don't have that technology available to us.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I do think it increases your production costs, though, because then you have to have different costumes, different Mm -hmm. cars and that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't know that it's exponentially more expensive, but I yeah, (laughs) my belief is, oh, this is already a bit of a hard sell concept. Do we want to also make it a period piece? Yeah,
0: I I just I I have this belief that there is a big warehouse in Hollywood that has a bunch of Of cars 100
1: cars from every
0: decade From every era (laughs) (laughs) And there's also trains in there And planes Trains, planes, and automobiles like, mm. planes trains and automobiles there we go it's just a giant giant fucking warehouse it, it's like that the car garage in mission impossible ghost protocol yeah sure <laughs> everybody <laughs> knows in the it. furious movie as everyone, as knows, as about everyone knows obviously <laughs> that one very specific reference yeah <laughs> that's a really high tech garage and so that's what i'm believing truly yes <laughs> <laughs> you can get a car you can get crushed by a car Anything you want. It's like it's like a vending machine where you press like a two and you just get lifted (laughs) to wherever the car is. I love it. I love it.
1: Okay, so John is driving to go and cover something political. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't we matter. We just know that he needs to drive and go and do it. So he's en route to Richmond, and in the middle of the night, he, he heads out because he can't sleep, and his car randomly just loses power and stops on the side of the road. So he gets out and he's walking to a nearby house. He clearly feels like he's being watched and I do want to recognize the camera work in a lot of these outdoor sequences is very we are in the point of view of something and people yep. are constantly being watched. It's mm-hmm. like we're flying in the sky. It's very evocative. I like it.
0: Well, that's mm-hmm. a, it's I get a, a lot of a lot of the visuals and like the flashy visuals like do feel very of the time. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I like how ex- how experimental paladin is being with this and i think that comes from his i mean thank god he wasn't the writer because i don't know if he would have been able to like put together a cohesive story about this but Mm -hmm. i enjoy literally watching this movie yeah even in this quote-unquote
1: slower parts of the film we're often doing these very flashy transitions courtesy Mm -hmm. of editor brian burdan or yeah, we're moving the camera around like it's going out of style and that's, it's interesting, I noted on your cheat sheet, Trace, uh, cinematographer Fred Murphy also did Stir of Echoes, and I would say yep. that feels uh-huh. like this film.
0: Okay, so so it's, it's a combination of that, it's Fred Murphy's cinematography but as you said, with with Berdan's edit, editing, so mm-hmm. Berdan comes from the school of David Lynch, so he had yeah. edited like mm-hmm. Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart I mean, this isn't Lynch, but he did like Natural Born Killers um, and our favorite movie the net. Oh, oh the I net. love the net. Actually, oh, but you know what? Though? Here's more of like, similar things though. U-turn, the Oliver Stone movie. Mm-hmm. Domino. Oh my god. Forgot about <laughs> Crank. that. Frank. My name is Domino. I am a bounty hunter. The weird one. Oh god. <laughs> the weird one. Um, underwater. And Mm-hmm. Bo- the boy and Brahms, the boy too. <laughs> oh boy, okay. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think you can see a lot of but both the cinematographer and the editors like like trademark signature things yeah. in this
1: movie. Yeah. So John is out walking, he's looking for help, he goes to this house, and he knocks and is immediately greeted at gunpoint by Gordon Smallwood, who is played by Will Patton, as well as his wife Denise, who is played by Lucinda Jenny, and they basically hold him hostage until Sergeant Connie Mills, Laura Linney arrives, and the argument that they have is that they've been stalked by John for the last couple of nights at exactly 230 every morning.
0: And lord help you, if you want an explanation for this, um, you're not going to get one.
1: Well, it's just one of the many random occurrences, right? We learn that people have been seeing mm -hmm. things, that they're getting random phone calls, and you just accept it or else you're not going to like the movie.
0: That 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 wasn't a critique. It's just more oh, so okay. like <laughs> the, the, sorry. Th- this is what the film is going to do. That's what I'm saying. You know, like, oh, we're, we're removing the answers from the script and replacing mm-hmm. them with more questions. Right. That's what we're doing here. So mm-hmm. if, you, if if any of these mysteries arise and you're hoping for an explanation, nah. that's not what this movie is doing. No.
2: It's no. also not what high strangeness is. It's uh, like Joe said earlier, it's like questions we get other questions. Like it's mm-hmm. answers and then you get new questions. And then it's yeah, I think that the, I love that, though. I li- and I like a film that does a really good job of like putting you in this really bizarre scenario really quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and you just go with it. And it works. It works yeah. for like what the movie is doing.
1: Yeah, like in some ways, this opening to me feels evocative of uh, Silent Hill, right? You yes. randomly end yes. up in this mm-hmm. town and you've got to ask questions and meet people to try to find your way through. Oh, but yeah. a lot of the time it's like, mm, I don't know. I'm Actually, just gonna keep
0: going. Silent Hill is kind of like the version of this movie that incorporates both what this movie is trying to do and, and the creature feature aspect. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So true. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
1: Okay, so Connie manages to de escalate this. She drives John to a motel, and this is when he realizes I'm in Point Pleasant, which is on the state line of West Virginia and Ohio, aka six hours away from where I should be. And he
0: traveled six hours in 90 minutes.
1: I love it. That's yeah, that, the liminality, right, Ari? That's that's actually
2: a very um. That's like the lost time thing. That's pretty typical. Well, I say pretty typical. It's it's a, it's a component of like, in encounters with UFOs or abductions, and like right, and, and in cars too. Like there's some a couple of really famous cases of people being abducted in their cars, being gone for X period of time, and then like being back in their cars, and it right. it's like hours have passed or whatever. So this is like a I think a nod to that, but. It's just so I don't know. It's fucking cool. It is very much like that. <laughs> that silent whole universe of like, ooh, we're in some, we're in a weird space now. I could just
1: imagine how disorienting this would be too. Because oh yeah, you know, our two main characters in this movie—they're both quote unquote authority figures. They're high-standing, morally upright citizens. Mm-hmm. Because we've got a reporter and a police officer, and they are figures. Like they deal with facts all the time, right? Like that's John and Connie's M.O. is we should be able to find reasonable explanations for all of this. And the whole movie right. is rational characters being forced into situations that don't have answers. hmm. So, uh, he ends up meeting back up with Gordon and kind of explaining like, hey, I don't really know how I got here. And then he tries to get answers by staking out Gordon's house again the next morning. And this is where he and Connie really start to gel. So she sees him instead of arresting him or trying to chase him off, they sit together, nothing happens. Which maybe is your answer. <laughs> but this is when she fills him in. Hey, there's been this rash of weird incidents happening around town. So then we get a research montage yeah! as John goes through, and then of course he finds an image that looks identical to the drawings that Mary did before she died. Bum 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 bum. My man. So, the next day, he, yeah, speaks to this woman. We we get a series of these kinds of interviews of weird things happening. So, we've got the woman who saw it standing outside of her house. Uh, we've got the fire chief, who is played by Nesbitt Dell, who talks about the weird phone calls he's been getting. And uh, we also have CJ and Holly. They're a relatively young, engaged couple, played by Dan Callahan and Kristen Frame. And they talk about seeing lights like almost ufo style lights while they were out making out in the car
0: mm-hmm. oh boy this I, i'm sorry i'm jumping ahead but this poor guy gets the worst death in this movie <laughs> oh you mean the final destination death yeah yes. he gets a straight up final destination oh kill. yeah <laughs>
1: i was just like oh this movie and a double bill with
0: final destination (laughs) five that's the thing like okay so again for all you youngins out there this comes out between final destination and final destination 2 and again i'm watching this and i'm like i do wonder if the huge success of Final because they would have brought this script to peloton you know late 98 early 99 Mm. and final destination comes out in march of 2000 and that would have been before the original rewrites were done. And so I I just wonder if this massive success of that film influenced some of this in a way, which, again, synchronicity because then, yeah, Five would maybe not take the bridge collapse from this movie, but like, come on,
1: come on. Yeah, lightly lift it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it would have been imp- like really not um, possible to tell this story using the book as the source material without including the bridge collapse. So, yeah, no. but, but I think but definitely how much of it they show, which is way more than you would expect with the movie of this scale and the way yeah. it's executed is so effective.
0: That's what I, I, I didn't remember the, the bridge sequence being that prolonged and no. it's like a lengthy climactic set piece of this film. Yeah. But yeah, oh yeah, it's... um, Again, oversimplification, but this is basically the opening scene of a Final Destination movie, um, Mm -hmm. but two hours long.
1: (laughs) 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 Sure. (laughs) oh boy so that night at the motel john gets his own weird phone call it's it's starting to affect him but it's still insignificant you know it's kind of staticky he's not hearing anything whatever and then in the morning gordon tells him that he heard a voice in the drain so pennywise told him denver 99 and okay so (laughs) what does that mean who fucking knows And that's when Gordon's ear begins to bleed, and we're like, oh, fuck, he's just got a Mothman tumor as well, (laughs) so let's ship him off to neurology. The cool thing about the movie, actually, is a lot of the
2: things that happen, um, Mm -hmm. like the, the weird things that physically start happening to people, or even just kind of like the very... Um, specific encounters like with phones and stuff like that Mm -hmm. these are all things that have happened in the book um that are reported okay not not necessarily like it's not none of this is just totally like a fabrication to make it it, it's stuff that has been yeah that that was that that was my
0: again rewatching this knowing it was a book that that, truthfully the book does sound like an anthology of sorts though Mm -hmm. with these different witness accounts which i'm assuming is what the show is going to be more like doing yeah so the film yeah sounds like oh we're taking all these random stories and just trying to put them into a cohesive like singular narrative Mm -hmm. Right. Without trying to sound too
1: first year film school, uh, I can imagine them doing the TV show kind of Rashomon style where you get a bunch (laughs) of different isolated incidents that then build that then build to the bridge collapse in the season finale or something. Mm, Yeah, yeah. uh,
2: that reminds me of there's... um... A show called Calls. It's an Apple, an Apple. TV oh yeah, show. yeah, yeah. That show, does, and it's a, that's a purely audio show, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. It was so fucking good. But it does that very similarly, and, and monster land on Hulu does that as well.
1: Oh, I loved Monsterland.
2: I'm actually, ju- I just started. um Well, I just got in back into it, and I'm uh, almost done with it. But it's just, I love that kind of storytelling, and I absolutely could see a, a TV show of, with this source material doing that and doing it really effectively.
1: Oh, that's so fascinating. Sorry, sidebar. Uh, Terry menard and I actually ended up covering Monsterland, so it's mm-hmm. we never found anyone who watched it. So that's kind oh, of it's exciting, it's
2: fantastic, yeah, big big um recommend for Monsterland if you. Well, like, where very, were you like, like, back then, Ari? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know what? There's too much media to cover, so if people discover something after the fact, all the power to them. Right,
2: and sorry, yeah, I was just trying to like survive grad school.
1: There we go. (laughs) Oh, you mean you don't just snap your fingers and they give you a PhD? Come on. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay, so Gordon ends up getting the all clear. So this is not the same situation as Mary. He is not dying. He is still panicking about it. But that's kind of Gordon's MO. He's a little bit high strung.
0: High strangeness, you might say. Uh, uh,
1: Yes. (laughs) so we go to the diner and we're getting food and then oh what's happening on the tv except a denver plane crash that kills 99 people
0: it's one thing when you move to denver you start noticing a lot of more movies and shows are set in or around the denver area (laughs) sure if you're looking for something you see it more often actually
2: that's a that's a really good um kind of like uh thing to bring up in the context of this this idea of like um your attention it's uh, uh your bias to see things that you know are, are they catch you more it's like oh i got this honda fit and now i see honda
0: fits all the all over the place
1: yeah when you notice things they start to notice you back
0: oh my god what were we just want? oh 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 because uh we we uh we watched that jennifer lawrence movie no hard feelings uh yesterday And Laura Benanti pops up. And I'm like, I I swear to God, Laura Benanti. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, I noticed her on Younger uh, Joe, like when she was like that villain lady. And ever since then, I feel like I see her in every single fucking show I ever watch.
1: Yeah, I mean, I felt the same way when we were talking about Sarah Sherman on Chucky. And then I turn around (laughs) and she's literally in the new Adam Sandler, You're So Not Invited to My Bomb. Oh, Oh, yeah.
2: That looks cute. I want to watch that so it is cute um, yeah yeah oh so what i was gonna say joe this is a fun fact lauren Bonanti, i didn't even think about this too but like oh she's uh, one of the moms in the gossip girl reboot that we covered she
1: is
0: and she just showed up in the new season of the gilded age <laughs> so
1: what we're saying is we can play six degrees of kevin bacon with laura <laughs> benanti who is not in this movie
0: well but right, actually right. <laughs> I, uh, I think i think we talked about the, oh with patrick wilson last week she comes from the world of broadway Yes, she does. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> which honestly, I wonder if Sutton Foster knew her from Broadway, which oh, is why probably. she got the role in Younger.
1: Yeah. I mean, like it may not have been a one to one, but it was yeah. probably like, hey, Laura Benanti. And she's like, yeah.
0: yeah oh, my God. I great. love Laura Benanti. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Laura. Laura. <laughs>
1: okay so uh this is all becoming wow we're seeing connections weird things are happening so john decides he's going to reach out to alexander leek who is a book author who will eventually be played by alan bates but uh john just first tries to get him on the phone and he just says no thank you and hangs up
0: yeah I don't do that anymore. (laughs) I don't
1: do that anymore. And
2: Alexander Leake, his name, his last name backwards is a reference to John Keel.
1: Keel. Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. Okay. So we go to Connie's house so that we can spend more time getting to know each other. And this is where Laura Linney starts to turn it on, because up to this point, you know, yeah, she's been far going it up. But, Mm -hmm. you know, she's not just a small town lady cop.
0: She has a big emotional arc to play in this fucking movie. Yeah. Although I will say that when she, I, I love when she claps back at him when she's like, We had we even had shoes for schooling and, and such. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> she is so
2: <laughs> she is so fucking charming in this movie. Like, yeah, she I is. Just she's loved great. her presence and she and then their rapport is really great too.
0: It
1: is. Yeah. I like that they have chemistry, but it's not forced. Like you can totally yes. buy her calling him to come back for Christmas, but it's not hallmark level of smart
0: yeah 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 yeah. like we're not being like oh we got to get these together by the end because remember he's still grieving his dead wife (laughs) Mm -hmm. well it's been two
2: years it's about time he gets over that
0: well it's only been two minutes for us the audience (laughs) he just
1: needed to dick down and then all this mothman stuff wouldn't have had to happen he could have (laughs) just moved on with his life (laughs) Okay, so yes, Connie walks him through this dream that she had, and I love the way that Linny plays this, because she seems morbidly fascinated by it, but also when she says she accepted it and she kind of went with it, even though she was dying by drowning, surrounded by presents, she makes it sound almost happy or it's not such a bad thing
0: i, I will say so like I, I didn't remember most of this movie since i hadn't seen it in 21 years um mm-hmm. but i have like her delivery of wake up number 37 like mm-hmm. lives rent free and like when i heard it i was like oh my god i thought about that line delivery at least once a year for the past 21 mm-hmm. years
2: <laughs> yeah it's definitely one of those things in the like just kind of a creative liberty of the movie at making that a point and, and actually i want to say like the number of people that actually died in the bridge collapse was different it, it was not
0: was 30, it higher it wasn't 36
2: yeah it wasn't 36 oh um which i think it's weird that they didn't just go with the actual but again it is what it is but um
0: well but i okay okay N- not to have like a whole sidebar about the the epics of doing it cuz it's not a crime it's story it's true crime well it, it, yeah so we we are taking a very real tragedy and mm-hmm. i could imagine i could imagine someone who's related to one of these victims uh being like the mothman like why are you putting this and i would argue like hey this movie is actually a very like mature version of whatever mothman thing you're thinking of Mm -hmm. but we're also changing those kind of details like that although maybe that's the point to like distance it further enough from the true story even though we're marketing it as the true story i don't know that would explain changing the number of people who died just to say
1: yes we're obviously doing this story the name of the bridge is exactly the same the town is the same yeah but we're not specifically referencing any particular murder victims except for this cj kid who is really the only identifiable person we
0: can see who gets killed right but was he even a real person or based on a real person he, yeah
2: he was based on he is based on probably a number of of like teenagers or young adults that would Got go it. out to ah. this area and go to make out point and then they witness some weird shit like people would go to certain areas um like the tnt area or like i want to say um woody Derenberger's house to like basically camp out and look for things in the sky for a period mm. of time
1: mm. makes sense so Gordon that night sees a flash while he's parked near the chemical factory and then the next day he relates back to John this uh, conversation that he had with injured Cole and this is I would argue the first substantial I call them recreations you could call them reenactments I guess they're very interesting visually like they really do keep your attention it does feel like music video
0: editing which makes sense given the director's background i was gonna say like uh and obviously ari will probably laugh at me because i have no point of reference for like nine inch nails but i remember when we were doing the <laughs> cell ep- no <laughs> when we were doing episode the cell i went and i watched a bunch of nine inch nails videos because they yeah. were inspiration for Tarsum singh in his visual style of that film and so watching this, I was like, this feels like a Nine Inch Nails music video. <laughs> yeah.
2: There's definitely some editing there that feels very much like uh, that industrial type of like artists and, and the imagery that mm-hmm. they used to use back in like the 90s. Yeah,
1: for sure. So in this conversation with Indrid Cold, Gordon learns that there would be another disaster. And then he brings up the newspaper and yep, 300 people were killed near the equator. Bam, here we Ecuador. go. Ecuador. <laughs> Ecuador. Actually,
2: I really love that too, because it's like it, it is uh and again, like I was watching when I was watching this, it was like I was getting little moments of glee about things that are directly referencing um kind of norms of strange encounters like this at the time. Mm-hmm. So like that people, um, that that these weird men and and Indrid Cold was just one of a few, but he's the one that had a name that really kind of was its own thing like a lot of the other names that these alleged people would use are uh they ba- uh, tend to be rooted in like um old like greek mythology and stuff like that. So he uh-huh. is the only one who had okay. a name that was kind of like its own strange thing and right um obviously a popular popular figure there but um in the book it talks about how these people these men um who would question people would mispronounce things like would were very like confused by jello when they were offered jello they didn't know how to eat it. Um, no, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in there. And so I think it's funny that the message he relays to Gordon is like, however many will die, um, equator, but he's pronouncing Ecuador cause that's where it takes place. So I right, think that's, right. a, that's a really, like, I, I just love that little nod to like the mispronunciations that kind of would cause someone to be like, huh, you don't seem like a normal human person.
0: Right. But I think, in, I mean, also Ecuador is close to the equator. Yeah. Yeah. Of so. course. Maybe that's... Is that why it's called Ecuador? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Oh, wait, yeah. Ecuador, it straddles the equator on South America's west coast. So there you go. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Um, But but this phone call, though.
1: Yes. So this is the first time that we will hear Indrid Cold. And, uh, of course, he is performed by the director himself, Mark Pellington. And
0: uh, this is a very unusual cadence. So... Uh, I'm curious, Joe, did you find this scene effective? Because to me, this to me is the creepiest scene of the movie. Yes, you mentioned that last week when we were teasing
1: this episode. I honestly had completely forgotten about this scene. (laughs) And I do find it effective. I I mean, in some ways, it's a little bit showy in a silly way where you're just Mm -hmm. like, oh, he's doing things to try to fool this, but the person knows exactly what he's doing. But delivery of the words matched with the camera work does make it seem so suspect like we've already seen the camera having this kind of omniscient pov so we get the impression that john is already being watched so even the moment when like He keeps getting all this confirmation. The voice seems to know exactly what he's doing. And then he gets up and closes the blinds on his hotel, or Mm -hmm. he opens them to check and make sure no one's watching. And I was like, yeah, no, this is creepy. It very much makes you feel like he's under surveillance.
0: I mean, that's the thing, though. Like the chapstick line was like, what's in my hand? Chap. Stick. And it's like that that should be stupid. That should be really stupid. Mm-hmm. But it's
1: really creepy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I really like too about what they did with the
2: voice is that it is kind of meant to mirror this um like the oddities that, that people were getting phone calls and hearing this no- something that sounded kind of like a person, but then they, you mm-hmm. know, upon further investigation, it's more like a t- like an electrical tone
1: that's what i was thinking it sounds almost like what you get when you i mean we're living through it now when you put something into ai and it speaks it back right
2: yeah yeah it's very unnatural
1: mm-hmm. so while well, he is fielding this phone call connie is rushing to gordon's house but when he answers the door gordon's like mm, i've been asleep since nine so since it nine be o'clock <laughs> If If he's getting up early to go to work, this makes sense. Trace. a lot of
2: people go to bed at like nine eight. Like we have a lot of friends that go to bed who are our age. We're just late night people. I'm sorry,
0: my, my husband likes to make me stay awake until four in the morning. I don't make you do
2: anything, <laughs> trust like I don't you're an
0: adult, sir.
2: <laughs> Maybe I inspire you. It's just so much fun. you just want to stay up with me. Inspired
0: on, you inspire me just like the true story this movie is inspired by. <laughs> Fuck you. Oh my god, it's 3
1: a.m. Let's watch the Mothman prophecies again.
0: You, that you is... jest, but that, I mean like that's, <laughs> no, he that's said what it. he does. It's <laughs> very
2: much how yeah, it's very much very accurate as far as my life goes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, so we haven't mentioned it, but John has been recording a lot of these conversations, these phone calls. So he ends up taking the audio and getting it tested, and the technician confirms that the voice couldn't have come from human vocal cords.
0: Ah! Ah! Love it.
1: <laughs> it's very scary. Uh this is the point in my notes where I say, Eddie, who is still a character in this movie, begs John to talk to the boss.
0: <laughs> the boss we will never see again, by the way. Nah
1: doesn't matter. We're off to Chicago so that we can have a face-to-face ambush with Alexander Leak, the author. And this is where we get a, not metric ton, but quite a substantial amount of exposition. So it's... we learn what moths represent. We learn that uh, these kinds of creatures have always been around. They can't be explained rationally. And they're often associated or seen or heard from before disasters.
2: So what I'll say about this part that I particularly love Is that it? Really, kind of is is a really nice summary and an Mm -hmm. understandable summary of a lot of the bigger concepts in the the book and in the study of some some areas of high strangeness study too. Um, It's it's how do we interpret these things? How do we, you know, what is it? um, How do we make sense of it? And so, what I really like about this is that it kind of hints at a bunch of different, you know, potential. Uh, explanations for this, but ultimately saying you're going to mm-hmm. always try to find an explanation, and it's always going to escape you because it's kind of like beyond our our intelligence right. and our understanding. So, yeah. So, so a concept that I think is really important to bring up is the idea of ultra-terrestrials. So, you all are probably mm. familiar with extraterrestrials, which is like, oh, there's something from outside of of our planet and they're coming to visit us. And that's what aliens and UFOs are. So the sure. idea of ultra terrestrials kill, um, you know, really highlights as being not, um, not necessarily rooted in geographically in that way. It's more like um, across a threshold of time and space that we can't perceive. So, uh, so not that these things are coming from outer space. They're actually coming from another, basically another um, reality or timeline or, mm-hmm. or dimension that's, that's accessible from Earth, but they can just essentially pass through. And that's actually a really, um, that's kind of a, I know some folks that view that as a really universal belief about a lot of unexplained things like Bigfoot and ghosts and things like that. Um, it's like crossing that barrier where it's not a tangible, yes, that thing fell from space and it's here now. It's more like it can pass through. So that's really, I, what I love about that is the idea that he ultimately comes up with in the book. Is uh, is very much leaning into like kind of explaining how we end up believing what we believe, and this idea that ultra-terrestrials are all of these things that it's mm-hmm. like one, it's like this one energy essentially that appears differently depending on who, like he says, depending on who's looking. Um, and right. Andrew it's... Cole very directly says that, and I love that delivery of like, "What do you look like? It depends on who's looking," because that's really like right. the yeah. this this that's this theory in a nutshell. It's really like the the reasons uh why these things exist like the nessie of it all and bigfoot and mothman is because a group of people have seen it that way and that's how their brains are interpreting it Uh. in the same way that people are you know have beliefs in god and angels
0: well say to angels the same way people like view angels right like what does an angel look like to you does it have a bunch of eyes or is it a person with wings (laughs) so we were just making fun
1: of that orderly (laughs) and now it's like oh well of course, he just saw things differently. Well, no,
2: and I and I think that's really like that's a big a big um point here in this whole discussion of this topic is that really like is there a unifying unknown force out there that actually is just one thing but everyone sees it differently depending on their cultural influences, depending on their sure. life experience. And that's what that's what I really love about this type of stuff. Is that it? Can you can really start talking about bigger things like that? Like, what exactly is are these belief systems? If you are, you know, if you say God is this thing, what makes it that different from this other system that has very similar values and whatnot?
0: So, so but, uh, Ari, so I'm I, I, I hesitant to ask because I'm kind of like, well, do you think there's a motivation for Indrid Cold or the Mothman? Like, what what do you think is the if there can even be a reasoning assigned to this? creature, or this thing, this entity, what is no. its purpose? I mean,
2: again, I think that is like the big question. That's what people mm-hmm. spend like writing essays and doing research and even like modern paranormal researchers asking questions like that it's It's something that I don't know that we would ever really understand that, like if there was any kind of proof because it depends on what theory you're adhering to,
1: right? right. If you see them as forces of evil, then they're here to cause disaster exactly. and if you see them as angels, then they're here to warn you
2: right and i even I even think, um, you know, just kind of thinking a little bit more widely, I guess, like uh, there's another, you know, there are some people who would believe, oh yeah, that like these are spaceships, they're coming from outer space. This is an alien figure, essentially. Okay, mm-hmm. that's one belief. Okay, these are intradimensional, so it's an ultra terrestrial. Okay, that's another belief. Um, the places that um, you know kind of uh, fall under the category of having, um, you know, lots of uh, liminal space, uh, anti-structure, marginality being present. That 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 generates these creatures. So if you've ever seen the film. Um, the empty man the idea around that is so i don't know if you all have ever heard of like a tulpa to- a or an egregore but basically mm-hmm. these are um spirits or entities rather so a tulpa is so like it's like a uh, imaginary friend becomes sentient essentially so yeah it's this idea of like we create this being through our thoughts through like and so uh yeah the the idea of a topa is like individually like i've had all these thoughts to the point that they got so powerful that they created this entity so that's that's a theory that some people have or a, an egregore that's like a group of people who they all have these same thoughts going on or this all this energy and it creates this entity so that's another explanation for that some people would throw out there you know, like, because in the movie, and this is a spoiler if you haven't seen The Empty Man, but the idea is like this: this protagonist has, or I guess this group of people have created this entity because they joined together, and it basically, it was intentionally created through their minds, through shared thoughts, mm-hmm. and and all mm-hmm. of that. So that's a little bit, I like, mean, again, wacky, <laughs> you know. But uh, but it kind of is like that's why this stuff gets a little. It can get really complicated in the sense of. Well, what do you think this means? What do you think its purpose is? Because it really depends on, on what lens you're looking through.
1: Well, that and I mean, A, what you described to me also sounds like a criticism that could be leveled at most religions where people got together and they decided they wanted to believe in something and then they made it real. Yeah. Not that the tone in my voice was very dismissive. I meant that to be like, <laughs> this is how we come together and form beliefs. And like yeah. sometimes religion turns that into a bad thing, but often when people have faith, it's not. But, um, I, I like the idea that it's going to depend on what you believe. And there maybe isn't a simple answer of like, well, what does a moth man want? Mm-hmm. And, I guess it appeals to me because if you asked anybody, hey, like, what does Trace Thurman want? Right. You're probably not going to be able to figure it out because Trace, like, are you trying to do something or are you living your life and you probably have some goals or motivations that you're maybe trying to accomplish? Um,
0: I'm a complex figure, Joe. I'm an enigma. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: guess I'm just thinking, philosophically speaking, like, yeah. if yeah. you. It's hard enough for one individual, but say there were moth men, and there were a bunch of them out there in the world, like they probably aren't all working for one single purpose or goal, even like it's it's this weird thing where we want to categorize and try to make everything easy to process by assigning it something, mm-hmm. and I think the world and people and creatures are just more complex than that,
2: yeah, yeah. You, I mean I think there's this um this kind of view too of like marginality and being on the fringes of society, like folks who are really struggling with certain like uh, mental health um issues or different you know again um even thinking about like schizophrenia or having a tumor that would impact your perception, there mm-hmm. are some t- like there are schools of thought around like, oh well, like doing something like having. Um, this anomaly in your brain that causes you to hallucinate or that causes you to hear things. What you're actually doing is you're tuning into other frequencies that otherwise you wouldn't be able to access. And so really that's, I like that uh, Joe, like this, what you said about like, we try to, I think as, as humans, we always try to convert something happening or explain it using our means. And so to us, if an ent- like we think like oh this race would probably want to do this they're doing this what makes us think that it's like human mm-hmm. arrogance right like we can't even begin to know if there if there are other entities out there what they want because what basis would we have to even determine that we all, only we know all that we know is how to be humans right so that's the only lens right. we're looking through and so that's why i really mm-hmm. like that i i mean it is inherently a wildly philosophical discussion when you start, when you really start getting into a lot of this. And there are some like Bigfoot bros who are probably like, if if, if you're one of these and you hear me and you're getting mad, it's because (laughs) some people really don't like the, the the theory of like, oh, Bigfoot's actually an intradimensional being. And it's, you know, crossing between um, thresholds of reality. And they're like, no, it's flesh and blood. And there are people who think that. And so even within high strangeness, there's a lot of conflicting views about, you know, what are the motivations of these Um, these alleged creatures or whatever
1: right yeah well and just like in queer people just because we're all queer doesn't mean that we all believe the same things or act the same way like any kind of group is going to have diversity within it
0: yeah i disagree with lots of gay people
2: <laughs> really same
1: <laughs> very same <laughs> okay so we have this meeting with leak he gives us all of this information and then john has to somehow do something with this so he decides he's going to return to point pleasant he arrives in time for the tree lighting cuz remember folks this is still a holiday film and this is where he learns the bad news that gordon was not only fired from his job but that his wife denise has left him uh, and we also learned that there have been an escalation in Mothman sightings. So Connie tells him that there have been 15 new sightings that day. And I won't lie, I kind of use Connie as my audience proxy in yeah, the film. For sure. I think you're meant to, but the way that she starts to become more unnerved by this and then also Denise's reaction when Gordon ultimately dies from exposure in a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. She's just like, I'm so done with this. And you can tell that she's fighting up against these ideas of... I can't control this anymore. There isn't any kind of explanation. And I don't know how to live in a world that doesn't have boundaries anymore. Mm-hmm.
0: This is also like, I mean, like, look, I know we're like in like an ACAB world, but like, it's a very positive portrayal of a police officer, one who's mm-hmm. understanding <laughs> and like just a nice person. Well,
2: who's ultimately curious, like its not yeah, immediately yes. shutting people down and saying you're all fucking crazy
0: or, mm-hmm. you know, your
2: perspective doesn't matter. I think that really speaks as well to like, Kind of what I imagine this, um, you know, what became of the community post the Silver uh, Bridge and all the Mothman stuff and all of that. Um, This idea of just kind of being more open to things like, yeah, you know, weird shit happens now and like and I am going to try to put on my humble hat and and acknowledge, I don't know everything, which I really love about about how they And I certainly
0: can't control everything. Right, right. Well, and I I think that's a subversion of expectations, though, for this type of character who lives in this part of the country, which is really, really refreshing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and and I think we've touched on it, but I think we would be remiss not to acknowledge that these are not just probably Christian people. There's going to be more lower class or working class people in this town. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like i think it's important that the film does a good job of not just humanizing them but saying they're not fucking country bumpkins they're not idiots who will just believe in things because it's supernatural like these are clearly people who have a belief system but they're not dum-dums Yep. Yeah. right okay it's time for some more weird shit so john gets a wake-up call after having a dream of mary saying like hey i want you to be happy he's like cool thanks and then he gets a wake-up call at 6.14, and after we get, this is probably my least favorite part of this film, he hallucinates smashing his head in the mirror.
0: (laughs) Okay, so (laughs) there is a really good scare in this scene, though. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you caught it, Joe, but I think it's after he smashes his head, and he, like, shuts the door, and you can see a figure's face in the reflection. It's a split-second shot. Hmm. I did not catch it. Oh you did you did not see this? No oh it's spooky as hell it's the spookiest thing but here's the thing this this is the scene that, that they were like when they were producers they were like we need a scare in this movie and they uh, okay. so they came up with the idea of oh he's gonna wake up and Deborah Mess is gonna be right there cool we'll do that sure there's a scene so, so when he shuts the door and you see the figure's face that's actually a crew member's face that's been distorted by the mirror hmm, and it okay. was an accident but they kept it in the film because it looked creepy as shit so right. again I would recommend <laughs> go back and watch this scene again if you're not looking for it you might not see it but like apparently when this screens like for test screens in theaters mm-hmm. this got the biggest reaction out of audiences
2: really? yeah i'm looking at the at the screen grab right now and it's just like it looks almost like a red and black like featureless almost
0: like alien looking face like you could just see and it they just... may have touched it up in post but oh definitely I, look when they human. saw it they were like wait keep it <laughs> yeah it's,
2: it was really i think it was a really fortuitous accident because it is yeah. so creepy and i love this idea of, like, just getting a glimpse of something, and then your mind can just go fucking wild with it and
0: scare yourself. Yeah. yeah. So it, 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 it's a subtle scare because it's it, – the, the the film isn't highlighting it for you, being like, look, sure. boo! But if you see it, it's like, oh, shit, like right out of the corner of your eye type thing.
2: I want to say, I think this is also also the same scene where he is moving, but his reflection is delayed.
1: In yes. the mirror, something like that. It's yeah. really cool. Yeah, I I think part of the reason that this didn't land as well for me is sure. because I'm a jaded bitch who's seen too many mirror fake out no. moments.
0: I I I, I, I agree yeah. with you about the head bash. I mean, look, it's a fake out, right? Where it's like, oh, he's imagining it, but he didn't really do it. Oh no, he's losing his mind. Blah 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 blah. I get that. That is the less successful part of this scene for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just sounds like I missed the better parts. You did.
2: Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. That was not the part you should have been paying attention to, even though it makes right, it
0: yeah. kind of like a thing. But, but I can see you being like, "Oh God, this type of shit again," and then like mm-hmm. because of that, missing the scare that happens afterwards. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. I'm I'm writing another mirror scene in my head. Exactly, notes, yeah. and missing the good part.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've done it. I get it. I get it.
1: I've all been there. Okay, so he gets a very odd phone call from Gordon. He ends up going to look for him. And unfortunately, we discover basically one of the only deaths in this entire movie, which is that Gordon has died outside of his house overnight. Yeah,
0: he, he has a less icicle Jack Nicholson death from The Shining. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: more or less. And of course, the kicker is that the phone call that John got was only an hour ago, but the body has been out here for eight that's when things like
2: that's that man. yeah i love i mean this movie mm-hmm. does that really well this kind of like wait i thought that was you or wait you yes. were asleep this whole time i i just love that or, or mary like which we'll get to that soon but like laura linney you know talking about seeing this woman and then he shows the picture and then you can tell she's like conflicted about like well Mary's yeah. dead, but that it is what that woman looks like. But
0: also, not. that's a really good moment, though, from Laura Linney. Like you see the cogs turning in her brain when he shows mm-hmm. her that picture.
2: I love that, and, and, and things like that. And I just, I love like these little and everything with kind of like the weird calls always gets me but um when he before he gets the call from gordon i just love the delivery of like he answers the phone and it's like this is your wake up call john klein and it's like i i didn't request a wake up call and he gets hung up on which i'm like that is so fucking creepy like i've done i've done a number of solo like road trips since uh we moved here and i always think about like when i stay in like a shitty motel or something like that scene, I'm like, oh god, please, no one call this phone.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> please no, 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 leave no. me alone. I'm very boring. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely don't want to pick on me, supernatural entities, <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, there I am doing like tarot readings and doing using. That's I'm saying. No, he wants to like go hu- go camping to look for Bigfoot, and I'm like, I have seen too many movies where Bigfoot kills people. The number mm-hmm. of movies that Bigfoot is benevolent and not a murderous creature are are. It's not even Harry and, and the I don't Henderson. Do that.
1: <laughs> but those are all movies that were created by people who always imagine the worst case scenario. Thank for you. anything That isn't like us, Trace.
0: Uh, yeah. Okay. You know what? You can go on this camping trip with our <laughs> No, but what I, but
2: I actually do say that because I think it's this is actually a really um this is very much associated with like because I really enjoy like metaphysical stuff and I like stones and I like tarot and things like that and mm-hmm. I really I really do believe that these uh, you know kind of the the things that we see and experience are absolutely colored by our expectations and so it is not helpful to go into a situation if you're going to be you know participating in some ghost hunting or something where you automatically assume that anything that happens is is malevolent because then it it will it there's a chance it will be and i think the idea of liminality like all these people going through spaces and leaving their energy you know there's Mm. beliefs that like oh this is like a, a manufactured haunting meaning everyone started coming to this one place putting this negative energy and it created it and that's you know there's there's views like that so I, I yeah whenever trace has been not that i'm gonna ever force anyone to like go stay out in the woods or something but like okay. i i i'm really interested <laughs> the in the woods with a positive <laughs> mental attitude but what, okay, I'm, wait, wait, wait. But what I'm saying I mean, no but let me like, what i'm saying is that like that's actually a really like core factor here in my interests like i have so much like really genuine curiosity about what these things mean and having experiences like this, that to me, I'm just like, I just want to know what's out there. It's not like, it's not scary to me because it's unfamiliar, I guess.
0: Hmm. Okay. Like I'm only thinking about this because we've watched these movies a lot recently, Ari, but like horror in the high desert, like that, that is exactly what you're talking about doing. And those people fucking die.
2: But they are, (laughs) those are movies trace. They're literal (laughs) fiction. Like, but it could be true. So I would rather not find out. Well, we know that you would probably go into a scenario expecting the worst, and so that's good. To, that's good data to have.
0: <laughs> that's why it's good that I'm not in like a position of power in like the military world because I would be the one that's like, "Oh, I'm scared."
2: <laughs> Trace, you're fucking xenophobe. You're just scared of things that are not familiar
0: to you. <laughs> I mean, if they're not human, yes. <laughs>
1: Well, the funny thing is, is that we all live in relatively substantial cities and like the likelihood that you would encounter something malevolent in a city compared to out camping is probably pretty high.
2: Right. Yeah. No, I mean that we there's like a remember we got here and there are a lot of reports of of people's cars getting like getting carjacked or getting their catalytic converter stolen. So I bought like a club thing for my Mm -hmm. for my car. But it's, yeah, I'm like, I always think about that. I'm like, you're not scared about like driving through this city every day and there's a bigger chance of you yeah. getting in a car accident or something.
1: The statistics show you should be more worried about that. But yeah, right. I mean, this is what we do to ourselves, right? And that's yeah. kind mm-hmm. of one of the reasons I love being a horror fan is because we can play out these scenarios and discover new facets of what scares us, what unnerves us. Like, mm-hmm. I love hearing your two sides of the conversation for this movie because some of the some of the phone calls become a little redundant for me as the film progresses i'm like okay we get it it's staticky Ooh, yeah he hears something when he plays the tape bag Ooh, and the two of you are like no it's effective like it actually affects me and i think that's what's really great and it's why i hate people who say oh well that movie sucked because it didn't scare me it's like no it probably work for somebody else so maybe it's just not for you
2: i think that's that really goes into kind of like expectations because again i i go into watching a film like this and i already have kind of a frame that i like to approach and it's very much like opening uh being open-minded to like things not being explicitly laid out you know things being a little bit more right. like, i'm gonna need to interpret this or i'm gonna need to think thematically about this and that's mm-hmm. not that's not never been a thing for me where like I do that because I want to be, I want people to think I'm like, I don't know, fucking like a genius or educated or philosophically like enlightened or anything. I do it because like that's my own natural curiosity and I really like it keeps me interested in the world and living and being a person. Like I think, I don't know, it's something about it that's really like wonder, you know, wonderful and awe-inspiring that we can have these mysteries that, yeah, to some people they are really spooky and to other people it's like. Hey, this is just kind of like exciting and cool and different.
1: <laughs> Ari's here to spot the silver lining and Trace and <laughs> I Look, I'm
0: adventurous with the food that I eat. There we there you go. go. I there just we don't go. want to go camping looking for Bigfoot.
1: <laughs> we need to find a way to merge the two. So it's like we're going to try some new exciting liver dish. But it's going to be out in the high Mm, desert. Bigfoot meat, five star (laughs) restaurants. Get some of that bigfoot meat, Trace. We'll get you some. There we go.
2: He really would come and eat me. Didn't you see exists? (laughs) (laughs) You know, at that point, you might you might be asking for it.
1: Uh, so we're actually spending a lot of travel time at this point in the film so uh, we just came back to Point Pleasant but John is back on the road he wants to go and see Leek again so he heads out and this is when he gets the author's backstory so he started to hear voices those voices became messages he tried to prevent the explosion of a building that he knew was in danger and people died he nearly got arrested he lost his wife his kids stopped speaking to him and at some point he decided he would rather live than know the truth and that's when he just gave up on it all
0: well he also spent four years in a psychiatric hospital and so that this is a very sad story that this guy tells but but it's also surreal right like yeah at the end of the day these are not things that we as human beings are meant to understand or even know about so mind your own business a little bit, right? No,
2: no, no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Number
1: like, one, no. Uh, <laughs> did you not just hear the part of the conversation we had about curiosity? <laughs>
2: no. So, there, so, there, so that's actually really interesting because there are um, people who experience, or who, you know, in history, who have reported experiencing weird things. Like there's a couple, Betty and Barney Hill, that were abducted, allegedly, back, I want to say, in the 60s for like a day or maybe almost two days. Um, it's an interracial couple. But basically, like... Talking about how this thing that happened, like you would think, oh, God, I'm going to tell all the newspapers, I'm going to be famous. Like this was something like, you know, whenever they were going through the aftermath um, that really kind of fucked up their lives and was traumatic and really just wasn't it wasn't enjoyable having this thing, whether it was like not being able to explain this thing that happened and then like having people in society regard you in a certain way because you're reporting this happened And it's just, you know, it's, it's actually, I think that's really, um, I'm glad they included that in here because it is very much like a, like a nod to that experience of how these, how these kind of like encounters with these, uh, phenomena or whatever, uh, can really can derail your life. If it becomes, Mm -hmm. you know, it can can become like an obsession for people of like, no, I need to know. Um, and, and just consumes you.
1: Yeah. Like imagine spending all of your time trying to understand something that quite likely doesn't have an explanation like Mm -hmm. that just becomes a a sort of spiral right
0: yeah well and and that's what starts to happen to richard Gere's character her
1: Mm -hmm. well yeah i mean so hearing this and also hearing the warnings you know hey this could get you killed it could cause you to lose everything he ends up going back to point pleasant and he throws away his research And then he gets a call from that absent boss, Trace. (laughs) So Cyrus (laughs) informs him that Governor McCallum is coming to tour the chemical factory, and he wants him to go and talk to him. But when John plays back an injured Cole message, he hears there's going to be a great tragedy on the River Ohio. So he interprets this as, ooh, there's a synchronicity here. And he tries <laughs> to get Connie to leave town. She's like, no, bitch, that's not happening. I've got a job here. <laughs>
0: Isn't this the What Lies Beneath, like, ghost rule where it's like, ah, you know. What? What do I know? <laughs> What tragedy is going to be on this fucking river? Could you be more specific, please? Because I'm about to make a fool of myself telling people this plant's going to have an explosion or something. So please be more specific. I do think
1: it's interesting, though, that John goes to Governor McCallum as he's getting off this plane, preparing to do this tour, and... He is taken so seriously, despite the fact that he does sound a little unhinged. You know, hey, you can't go there. Something's going to happen. You need to shut down, get everybody out of there. He sounds a little loony at this point. And Governor McCallum is basically saying, oh, do we have intel on that? Like, do we need to act? Is there a threat? Has people Have people look for a bomb? He's like, no. (laughs) credit, Credit to him for taking the threat seriously. Well, I mean, I think
2: about government figures. That's kind of how they respond in general. Like, if you get any kind of... Word that something weird or fishy might be going on, even if it's from a crazy Mm -hmm. person, so to speak, you know, you're, they're, they're going to shut that shit down. So like, I, you know, that was what I really like about that scene too, is, is how they present it and they show it like intercut with him after the fact. Mm -hmm. Like at a restaurant or a bar or something, and he's
1: clearly like, No, it has not happened. So
2: fucking embarrassed. Yeah. He was like, Oh, God damn it. I did that.
1: Because you like, this is the point where I was surprised that we didn't get another phone call that says, Okay, you now need to face a consequence. You've been fired from your job because you were meant to interview him, and instead, you made yourself a laughing stock. You're fired.
2: Yeah, the governor basically like um, hints like, oh, I'm going to be calling your boss. So it's like, well, he's fucked. He's, he's not going to mm-hmm. have a job anymore.
1: Yeah, it's okay. He's just going to move in with Laurel and they can have like babies or something.
2: <laughs> I love that for them.
1: Uh, so after this dismal failure, he decides, okay, I am done. Uh, but also, I heard word that Mary's going to call me. I have to go home so that I can take the call at noon. <laughs> it's like John...
0: You need to pick a lane, buddy. Calm down, sir. Um, although I will say, though, that I, I I love the scene of him watching the phone ring. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just, again, this is where like the, the horror and the grief aspects really come together. Because you know how hard it is for him to not pick up that phone.
1: Sure. If you had a chance to speak to somebody two years after you lost them and quite abruptly, I mean, we we jumped over it because we wanted to get into some of the more interesting things. But there's a moment early in the film where he tells Eddie, you know, we had everything. And then in a, the flash of an instant, it was all just gone. hmm and mm-hmm. that's horrifying like to me yeah. that's actually more scary than anything that happens and well going off of a bridge as it's oh, yeah. Is really yeah <laughs> that's pretty shitty yeah that's pretty spooky just this idea that you know we bought a house and then we went for a drive because we wanted to get home and fuck and all of a sudden my wife has a mothman tumor and she's dead my <laughs> life is over
0: <laughs> like that's rough I, mean, I will say though people take a really long time to get out of their cars on this bridge they truly do yeah
1: so he he gets lured back with the promise of maybe new sex from Connie because she <laughs> says, "Hey, come home for Christmas." Joe,
2: I think you're the horny one. You're really really the sex
1: at <laughs> <of> these people.
0: <laughs> it's the
1: holiday season, folks. Get yours. <laughs> Unwrap that is present. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> 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 Gross. <laughs> so. Uh, Yes, he, he returns to Point Pleasant and immediately gets stuck on Final Destination 5 setting because there is traffic backed up off the Silver Bridge. It is 6 p.m. What time is that? Wake up call, folks. I think it was
0: six fourteen. I will say I love how drawn out all of this is. You know, it's and, forever. And, and you know, we have like, oh, there's a shot of a screw coming loose or a, mm-hmm. a cable kind of being slacked, like blah 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 yep. blah blah. But again, like this is a two-hour film, and I don't as I said, I don't think it entirely justifies that runtime, but this Climax is much more bombastic than I remembered it being, and I, I do think it makes the the, the 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 runtime like worth the wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I don't know that we
1: needed it, but I did kind of appreciate that we rehear the injured Cold warning about oh it's gonna happen on the river and we see the chemical plan and then we just kind of speed zoom out to the bridge and it's like Yes, bam, so good. here
0: we are. It's also kind of mean because when that teenage boy gets the cable in his face, um yeah, we then cut to his fiance walking out of mm-hmm. the wedding dress store. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And they're, they're engaged. <laughs> <laughs> Remember his eye that never healed. <laughs> Are you engaged? Not anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know what? She'll find love somewhere else.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know all of this is just so but again, he's telling people, get out of your car, get out of your car, and they're like, Burr.
1: Well, because he
2: looks he, he looks, crazy. Like yeah, he looks lost unhinged. His mind. yeah, he looks like he's not well. <laughs>
1: And, and the reality is, is that it is Christmas Eve. These people are trying to get places. Yeah. They are caught in traffic. They're upset. And somebody is randomly running by saying, get out of your car. Mm-hmm. You're going to be like, shut the fuck up. Why isn't this moving? Let's go.
0: Well, that, that's the thing, right? Like you, you're not because you you don't know you're in a horror movie or a genre film. So you're just like, right. what the fuck is this guy doing? I'm going to sit in my car where it's safe mm-hmm. unless you're on a bridge.
1: Yeah. So ultimately, it comes down to him seeing Connie. She is unconscious as her cruiser goes into this river and he decides he's going to jump in and try to save her. He's lucky that there is a pocket of air that allows him to breathe long enough to get her out of there. (laughs) I mean, the funny thing is, is that you would expect a bigger moment of him having to get the seatbelt out or we can't get the door open because water's rushing in no that's not the point the point was to watch the bridge fall down and then he scoops her up and brings her back because it's really like yep that's done let's get to our happy ending
0: well but but that's the thing it's not even really a happy ending because I, I i remember and i this worked much better for me now than it did back in 2002 but like okay it ends, but nothing is solved. It's just no. like a, oh, yeah, um, she was gonna die. Thank God he was there for her. But mm-hmm. again, some some of these questions just cannot have answers, and that's where the movie leaves you, which I yes. do think works really well, but if you're looking yeah. for any type of resolution, you're not gonna get it in this movie.
2: Yeah, and, I, and that's a I, I thing, too. I even think back in the day when I first saw this, and I was, you know, in ninth grade or something, um, being a little bit like, oh, bummer, like, there's not
1: more, yeah more
2: too but now I just love it. I love like how realistic mm-hmm. that is to because really that's kind of what happened i mean the the thing about at the end about oh the cause of the bridge collapse was mm-hmm. never uh yeah. determined that's that's a bullshit that's a lie
0: um <laughs> <laughs> it's, it was determined. That's movie magic. <laughs> actually, if, if, if you're on the Wikipedia page for the movie, you know it says the film ends with the claim that the cause of the bridge collapse is never blah, blah blah blah, but cause of the bridge collapse is hyperlinked to the Wikipedia page of the wreckage for analysis of the bridge. Happened.
2: Yeah, <laughs> okay. But I, but you know, I just remember like being kind of whatever about that but now it's like oh yeah because this town then had to kind of like that's a tragedy in a community so it's like a it's mm-hmm. it's a shared trauma and it's a thing that they had to work through as a community and it's probably still you know i, I think even just the way they've owned the mothman lore um now right. it's just really cool it's a really like a neat way to reclaim this thing that again mm-hmm. for so long felt like this town was being terrorized by all this weird shit
1: Mhm. Yeah. Trace, I do think I want to push back on you not in yeah. a bad way, but you said, you know, we don't get any answers, but mm-hmm. I would argue the movie is trying to gently manipulate us into feeling like this is an okay ending. Because not only do we get, yes, happy heterosexual union, but we also get, you know, the realization that the skeptic, right, the scully in Mm. Connie has come around and realized, hey, that dream meant something. It was a premonition. I was number 37. And then the final piece is that the Mothman was never seen again. So I think that lends credence to the idea that, oh, this was a good being it wasn't malevolent it was there to warn people
0: about interesting see i almost i I, when it comes to that i don't view the mothman as malevolent or benevolent it just kind of is yeah yeah, like that, that, that's why when i asked Ari about the motivation or like well, what, what did Ari think that the motivation was i don't think there is one i just think it's this entity this energy that does things why i can't say why outside of the fact that what leak says you know where it's like, oh some people are more attuned which is why they see it you know oh mary mm-hmm. had a brain tumor like so she saw it so that's kind of how i, I guess yeah I, I don't view this as an unhappy ending but i don't say it just is an ending sure
2: Okay. I mean, I think it's pretty fucking unhappy that all those people died.
0: <laughs> That's pretty well, no, but, bleak. But, 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 you, but you could, but but you could argue, okay, well, Richard, maybe this is Richard Gear, like get, not getting over his wife's death, but mm-hmm. he's finally learned to move on past the death.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and particularly since the only character, I I think I could be misremembering some of the other people we see on the bridge, but it feels like the only person we actually see that we know get killed is CJ, even though the movie says 36 people die, Mm -hmm. real life 46 people die. Right. So I... I guess I just think it's interesting that, you know, we could have killed Laura Linney's character and this would have been a less happy ending. But in some ways, this to me feels very okay. We are making a mid-tier hollywood film we need a happy ish ending where at least the two main characters live to get together
0: but but it still has that ending that we do because like you know she says like you know oh like number 37 and then we just kind of like yeah. zoom out and we're like all right there they are they're, that, they're alive as close and close to good. an answer as you're gonna get exactly although it's interesting that um that you mentioned scully and the x-files because i saw in several reviews especially a modern day letterbox reviews saying hmm. this would have been much better as an x-files episode sure. <laughs> that was one hour (laughs) well
1: and it's funny then that we're making final destination comparisons right because of course that first film
0: comes out of a spec script for an x-files episode yeah it's just that this is 20 minutes longer than that Yes. (laughs) Yes.
2: <laughs> and you know what? Every minute is just heaven for me. I love it so much. Sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I do think and look, I get why it's in here, but I think you can remove the scenes where he thinks the 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 chemical plant's gonna be the problem.
2: I No, I love it. It's so stressful too, because it's like and it's also like that kind of cringe, like, oh fuck, you're really doing this and you're gonna make mm-hmm. yourself look like a fool. Yeah. And it I don't know. I just really I like that misdirect because then it makes the actual like that shot of the zoom out later, yeah, even more effective.
1: I think it works better for the character than it does for the narrative. But I agree. I do see the point. It just, I mean, you could probably take it out and the movie would still mostly work.
0: Yeah, I agree. But yeah, that is the Mothman prophecies. So uh, Ari, I mean, uh, as the guest of honor, Peruge, what are your final thoughts on this film?
2: Well, I think it's pretty clear that um, I'm a little bit of a fan of this kind of stuff. <laughs> so, no, I, I mean, I think this movie is really um, kind of like an anomaly in and of itself. For just the way that it was, it was given the money it was and supported, you know, released by a major studio and had these big name people in it. The fact that a movie about this very, very like niche topic that that there, you know, there are nerds like me out there who are like are really fascinated by it and the mystery is still to this day and the mysteries behind it and the mystery is kind of related to it. I think it's just kind of a miracle that that this exists and that it succeeds as much as it does in capturing, you know, maybe like for the lay, for the lay person who's open to kind of like going to a strange place, capturing really the, the highlights of what, what that entails. And that to me is like super impressive. I, I, I don't know. I just think this the more I've watched this movie and the more I've done my own, you know, di- dives into these weird topics, the more I just respect it and how, and again, like it's not without its issues, of course, just like the book isn't without its issues. Um, right. And, and in general, like I, I go, I come to these topics with a, a healthy skepticism and a curiosity of like, and, and also like a humility around like, I don't fucking know everything there is to know. And I think, uh, humans are very arrogant and thinking that we you know this is the extent of what's out there in the universe um what we can see um it's really limiting but i don't know i just think that like this is very um it's just nice to have like a a nice thing like this in the high high strangeness community i'll just say it just it does it really well and, and i'm very uh, happy it exists and i and i hope that you know the show does uh continue on and uh, and, and actually comes to fruition and that people get exposed to this more because it's it's fascinating stuff and i think like we you know hopefully you know this has been for me a really nice conversation about a lot of different things
1: we definitely got more philosophical than i
0: anticipated talking oh, about the film. see i guess because i live with them i, I anticipated
2: it <laughs> oh, no. i was okay. about to say that's kind like of like my baseline sometimes so. the <laughs> I mean,
1: yes i should have expected it from a conversation with you because of course you would bring something illuminating and
0: deeper i think this might be the quietest i've ever been in one of our episodes <laughs> hmm. good shut What a concept. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Uh, No, uh, I I like this movie quite a bit. I don't love it. I think I'm at a three and a half out of five, but I really admire it for what it's trying to do and for not caving to something more commercial. Hmm. Hmm. And when was the last time we got to say that? Right. Uh, very rarely.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: I miss that. Yeah.
1: I'm kind of in the same boat. I mean, this is such a weird little oddity. I think the thing I really enjoyed watching it this time was doing it in such close proximity to Murder by Numbers, which is another 2002 film and has such different energy Mm -hmm. so it's kind of wild when you get to see like what are some of the other genre films that were coming out around the same time because it does feel like this is doing something completely unique and different whether or not that works whether it's wholly successful right whatever but it it, it is spoiler alert it is there we go there we go you know what it works that well for at least one person it does and that's all that matters yeah yep
0: But uh, all right. Well, I guess uh, before we announce what we're covering next week to kick off December, uh, Ari, let everyone know where can they find you on social media.
2: Yeah, as usual, you can find me at the Ari Drew T H E A R I D R E W on uh, Twitter, Instagram facebook um i also uh again i like i mentioned i run the high queerness group which is for queer folks and their allies who are really interested in high strangeness and stuff like mothman and other spooky things and we do trips usually we try to do at least one a year so if you're interested feel free to to check out my socials because i i tend
0: to post about that quite a bit yes come join yes. us on our vacations yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's not a vacation oh, but it is a vacation it is I was say be careful who you make that offer to
2: <laughs> right um,
0: <laughs> but uh, yeah alright well if you want to get in touch with us you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at horrorqueers shoot us an email at horrorqueers at gmail.com find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered and go to our YouTube channel to check out our Chucky reviews and tune in once a month to hear about our most anticipated horror films for that month uh, join our Facebook Horror Queers group if you want to chat with other like-minded listeners if you have a moment please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify and if you want even more content please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers Uh, this is oh this is the end of November so uh, Mm -hmm. if you subscribe today you will get over 275 hours of Patreon content including this month's new episodes on Hell House LLC Origins the Carmichael Manor the last
1: (sighs) time you have to say that (laughs) Yep, last
0: time. birth rebirth the fall of the House of Usher five nights at Freddy's thanksgiving and our audio commentary on the original 1988 child's play mm-hmm. joe yes i have never heard of the film we are covering next week so please <laughs> enlighten us Oh boy.
1: Okay. Yeah. So this could possibly be the longest titled movie that we have ever covered on the pod. It's also going to be our final film for the year that is over like 30 years old. So we're going to travel back to the 70s. We're going to go to Italy, Trace, and we're going to watch a little film called
0: Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. I have no idea what this movie is, and I'm so excited about that. Here's the thing. I've, I've heard <laughs> that the title is outlandish
1: and that the movie doesn't necessarily live up to it. But yeah,
0: I assume that we can probably expect some uh, giallo. Yes. And everyone, if you're wondering where to get this, uh, it's on Tubi. Yeah. All right, everyone. Well, until your vice is a locked room and only I have the key next week, <laughs> we can cross out the Mothman
1: prophecies. <laughs> So much easier to say. Yes, and cross out horror queers.